2: Kean University invited rapper Common to give a commencement speech in May of this year, and they actually disinvited him after it turns out that 15 years ago he wrote a song about a Black Panther activist who uh, is on the run after shooting and killing a New Jersey state trooper. Now, this is about Asata Shakur, and she allegedly uh, shot and killed a police officer. a very long time ago, in the 70s. And after that happened, she was convicted of murdering him, and then she was sent to prison, where she escaped. Now, she fled to Cuba, where she's currently living today, and the US is trying to extradite her back to the United States in order to try her and put her back in prison. Now, uh, in Common's song, apparently he said some things that were favorable toward her, and that's the reason why the university has decided to disinvite him. In Common's 2000 album, oh my God, 2000 was 15 years ago. I just realized that. In his 2000 album, Like Water for Chocolate, he dedicates a song to Shakur, formerly Joanne uh, Chesmiard, who was accused of shooting and killing New Jersey State Trooper Werner... Forster in 1973. In 1979, she escaped from prison and sought political asylum in Cuba, where she has lived ever since. Now, Shakur was charged with first and second degree murder, four counts of assault, illegal possession of a weapon, and armed robbery. She served six years at Middlesex Prison. Now, if you want some examples of what the lyrics to his song say, uh, she, he wrote, Who shot the trooper? They asked her, put mace in her eyes, threatened to blast her. And another example, uh, a cell, one caught, no window, facing hell, put in the basement of a prison with all males.
0: Okay. Um, it, I, I was expecting lyrics that were far more outrageous. You know, like, so he's saying that she got mistreated after she was arrested. He's at least implying that in the song. Mm-hmm. Okay, now that could be true. It could be a horrible tragedy that he was shot, and not good that she was mistreated after... She was in prison. I don't know if that's the case. I don't know anything about this story. Uh, I, the story. And the part of the story I'm most amazed by is that she escaped from prison. I know. I think right. that's, that's
2: incredible. Not only escaped from prison, made it all the way to Cuba. How did that happen?
0: It, it wasn't like that. It is today. Like today, now they track the hell out of you. You know, they'll uh, bring down the Bolivian president's plane to catch you. Uh, But back
3: then, the grid wasn't like this. You could actually escape.
0: Context of white supremacy. Justice Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast. Hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, June 5th, 2015. So I have been told. Invest if you think the program is constructive racism-notes.blogspot.com racism-notes.blogspot.com listener supported counter racist radio we are fundraising for the summer 2015 Invest if you think the program is constructive you will see the PayPal button uh, on the blog in the top Right corner. If you can't find the PayPal button or just not into PayPal, feel free to drop me an email. We will get you a mailing address if you would like to support the broadcast. Uh, hopefully, folks will invest if they think the content has been constructive. Uh, the audio you heard at the beginning, uh, the Young Turks, uh, that happened just a few weeks ago where they talked about this big controversy where Uh, Common, uh, his invitation was rescinded uh, because of his association, really just writing a song uh, about Asada Shakur. Uh, This is our fifth study session. We are in chapter 11 Uh, for folks who are following along. We should have about two more study sessions before we are done with the book. Uh, But as I said, that's just what you heard with uh, Common. She has been all over the news. Uh, Even New Jersey Governor Chris Christie last week uh, gave a verbal lashing to President Obama about his stance on Cuba and saying that they've got this terrorist nigger wench uh, over there and she needs to be brought back right now uh, to serve the rest of her time. Uh, At any rate, we will go ahead and get started. Context of White Supremacy, again, the autobiography of Asada Shakur, Chapter 11.
1: Chapter 11. On July 19, 1973, while I was still at the Middlesex County Workhouse, I was brought to the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of New York and Brooklyn, which has jurisdiction over all federal crimes committed in the counties of Brooklyn and Queens. I was taken there by federal writ to be arraigned on an indictment in which Andrew Jackson and I were accused of having robbed a bank in the county of Queens on August 23, 1971. While there were a lot of indictments against me all over New York State I didn't even know about that summer, this one I surely could not have missed, because the bank surveillance photo taken of the woman holding up the bank with the gun was put on wanted posters that were pasted up in every subway station, posted in every bank and post office, and blown up in full-page newspaper advertisements. They hit the streets on August 24, 1971, and remained even after my arrest on May 2, 1973. Under the photo was the name Joanne Deborah Chesimard. Above the photo were the words, Wanted for bank robbery. $10,000 reward. After the feds took a mugshot of me and fingerprinted me, I was arraigned, pled not guilty, and was returned to the workhouse on the same day. I heard nothing further about this indictment until January 1st, 1975, when the feds brought me back to the Eastern District Court. Only, this time, it was to have me photographed. The prosecutor has made a motion to have me photographed, in the same angle, wearing the same kind of glasses, wig, and dress as the woman who had been photographed by the bank cameras during the robbery. The judge, a notorious racist pig, is sure to grant the motion. As far as I am concerned, the reasons are obvious. You put anybody in a monkey suit and they're going to end up looking like a monkey. Besides, someone had told me about some trick the FBI uses— They take a photo of you in the same angle as the bank photo and superimpose a transparency of the bank photo over it. If you are unfortunate enough to have two eyes, a nose, and lips in more or less the same place, you end up looking like the bank robber, no matter what you really look like. When I was arraigned, I had permitted them to take all the photos of me they wanted, and that, as far as I was concerned, was enough. We enter the courtroom. The judge is on the bench. The courtroom has been rearranged. FBI agents with cameras are standing on top of tables. A group of marshals are buzzing around nervously like flies that smell rot. They are waiting for action. Evelyn gets up and says her piece. The judge ignores what she is saying and orders me to be photographed. I refuse, stating my objections as strongly as I can. In a hot second, the marshals and the FBI agents are crawling all over me. They seem to be trying to jerk my head off my shoulders. The judge has ordered that I am to be photographed today, now, and that all the force necessary to take the pictures in the way the FBI wants to take them is to be used. The FBI, the marshals, and I end up on the courtroom floor with me on the bottom. I hear Evelyn in the background. Let the record reflect that the marshals are twisting my client's arms behind her back. Let the record reflect that the marshals are choking my client. Let the record reflect that there are five marshals manhandling my client. Evelyn goes on and on while the marshals twist me, jerk me, strangle me, kick me, and literally try to beat me into submission. The assault goes on and on with Evelyn putting it blow by blow into the record. Finally, it is over. The marshals lead me back into the holding pen. I lie on the bench like a rag doll with the stuffing hanging out, feeling like I have just been stampeded by a herd of buffalo. Evelyn comes back for a lawyer's visit. She looks just as tired as I feel. That was unbelievable, she exclaims. How's your arm? Are you okay? More or less, I tell her. My body is aching and my bad arm's numb. I sit back, marveling at how cool Evelyn has been. It dawns on me how hard it must have been for her to watch what was happening and then calmly put it into the record. I am amazed at her control. She insists that a nurse be called to check me out. Did you hear that shit? She asks me. Yeah, I heard it. I can't wait for the record to be transcribed. If they don't erase it, I think we've got that dumb asshole right on the record. If they don't erase it, then we can get that stupid moron off the case. Evelyn is looking triumphant and defiant. Like she has just put her foot up somebody's butt. What the hell are you talking about? I want to know. Didn't you hear him? He said right on the record that he thought you were guilty. He admitted he was prejudiced right on the record. Didn't you hear him? I'm afraid I was otherwise occupied. What does it mean? It means we'll be able to get rid of his stupid ass. Anybody else is bound to be better. This judge is out to hang you, and he'll go to any limits to try and convict you. If we're forced to go to trial in front of him, I'm afraid the only shot we'll have is in an appeals court. I sure hope they don't erase the record. Evelyn and I sit there, speculating on the chances of the record being changed. Evelyn thinks the judge is too dumb to even realize what he said. I'm afraid that the judge will review the transcript and then have it changed. Evelyn thinks that the judge is too racist and too arrogant to be worried about the record. It turns out that she is right. She files a motion, based on the transcript, to have the judge relieved from the case. After what seems like forever, the judge is removed, and a new judge is assigned. But before I went to trial on this case, the powers that be decided that I must first be tried on a state kidnapping case in Brooklyn Supreme Court. I had been accused of kidnapping a drug dealer for ransom on December 28, 1972. Evelyn was my lawyer, and there were two co-defendants. One was Rema Olugbala, Melvin Kearney, a member of the Black Liberation Army and well-known to me. The other co-defendant was a young brother by the name of Ronald Myers. The pre-trial motions were permeated by an aura of paranoia. Mine. No one I knew had ever heard of Ronald Myers, and no one understood why he had been targeted for this particular frame-up. In fact, I wondered if he was some kind of plant. It all seemed so strange. Finally, we had a joint conference, which was arranged by a court order. I asked Rima about Ronald Myers. Rima told me as far as he was concerned, Ron was just a brother who happened to have the misfortune of being framed along with us, an unsuspecting victim. But everything in this case was so strange that I couldn't figure it out. A joint legal conference was arranged between Ronald Myers, his lawyer, a young black lawyer by the name of James Carroll, Evelyn, and me. Immediately upon seeing this brother, most of my suspicions disappeared. He was 19, but looked about 16. He had a quiet, soft, and honest manner that I didn't think any police agent could feign. He seemed to be just as perplexed and out of it as we were. As I listened to him talk, I felt a kind of motherly protectiveness towards him. We were revolutionaries, supposedly prepared for such things— For years, we had been preaching about and denouncing pig conspiracies to kill and imprison black political activists, but looking at this soft-eyed young black man, the thing seemed that much more horrible. Those were very cynical days, and we had developed very cynical attitudes to deal with it all. We had become masters at telling bitter, angry jokes about justice and equality and democratic freedom. But seeing this brother awakened such a sense of righteous indignation in us so-called veterans that we were all bitten by a sudden burst of energy. I pored over the discovery material and the police records tirelessly. Vrema was tense, mysterious, and determined in his manner. We knew that the state was out to get us, and we were more determined than ever not to let them. The guards came and tore my cell apart. It was clear they were looking for something. Standing on chairs, kneeling on all fours. They reminded me of bloodhound bitches. They seemed desperate. I tried to speculate on what they were looking for. One of the black guards, who was halfway decent, was looking funny at me. Another guard, who had always been hostile, looked smug. Shortly after they left my cell, I tried to hook up with the wire to see what was going on. Finally, I got the news. Rema Olukbala was dead. He had plunged to his death while trying to escape from the Brooklyn house of detention. The makeshift rope that he was using to lower himself had been broken. I felt too numb to do anything, or say anything. Some of the sisters helped me piece my cage together. There was nothing to say. Another black man had died trying to be free. Everything was boiling up inside of me. I had to do something, and most of my options seemed absurd. It wasn't what I would have liked to have done. It didn't say half of what I wanted to say. But I guess it was the best thing I could have done at that moment. I wrote a poem. Firma Olugbala, Young Blood. They think they killed you. But I saw you yesterday, standing with your hands in your pockets, waiting for the real deal to go down. I saw you smiling your fuck it smile, blood in your eyes, your heart pumping freedom, young blood. They think they killed you, but I saw you yesterday, in the playground, black, skin, sweaty, shiny, hurling your ball bomb into the hoop, right on target. Won't be no game next time, cause you ain't hardly playing. They think they killed you, but I saw you yesterday. With your back against the wall, muscles bulging against the chains, eyes absorbing truth, lips speaking it, heart learning how to love, head learning how to hate, blood ready to flow towards freedom. Young blood. Young bloods ain't got no time to waste, and no syringes on no barroom floors, and no strange lands delaying other young bloods' freedom. We don't need no tired blood, no anemic blood, no blood clots in our new body. They think they killed you, but I saw you yesterday. All them young bloods must have gave you a transfusion. All that strong blood, all that rich blood, all that angry blood flowing through your veins toward tomorrow. The next time we went to court, I winced when I saw the empty chairs. Slouching listlessly, I thought about Rema, completely unaware of what was being said. There was talk about this hearing and that hearing and this motion and another, and none of them made the slightest sense to me. But Evelyn was on the case, letting nothing slide by, citing all of her objections for the record. I was bored to death, completely out of it, until the jury selection process began. There were two prosecutors— one exceedingly ugly lynch mob-looking fat guy, and another thin-bearded wolfman-looking dude, rather on the young side. I don't even remember their names. The judge's name was William Thompson, and he was a black man, which surprised me. I guess they assigned the case to him because they were so sure we would be convicted that they figured a black judge would at least give the illusion of justice. Thompson was somewhat of a character, who rarely sat up on the bench but constantly walked around the courtroom. While he clearly could not, by any stretch of the imagination, be accused of ruling in our favor, and his political career would certainly not have been helped by our being acquitted, nevertheless, the courtroom did not have that out-and-out lynch-mob atmosphere we usually encountered. The jury selection process really stood out in my mind. Anyone can write a book about how a black lawyer can pick a jury and eliminate hostile, racist, prejudiced jurors from the panel, then Evelyn is surely the one to write that book. I was fascinated as I watched her. She was all honey and pie as she started to voir dire the jurors. At first, almost all of the white jurors began by saying they had no prejudices. By the time Evelyn finished asking them questions, we learned they had no black friends or neighbors would object to their children marrying a black person or had referred to black people as niggers or some other derogatory name. After a while, many of the whites asked to be excused before Evelyn even asked them any questions. Most of them preferred to be excused rather than have their feelings toward black people, black militants, and black panthers questioned and explored. When you think about the fact that the average black defendant on trial gets to ask prospective jurors only a few perfunctory questions, you can see why so many black people end up in jail. Even with Evelyn putting everything she had into picking the jury, it was a long uphill struggle. But at the end, we managed to get four or five black people on the jury, a remarkable accomplishment anywhere in America, except for D.C., the prosecutor even had the nerve to ask for extra peremptory challenges so he could bump some of the jurors off the panel. The hardest thing in the world for me was to keep my mouth shut in the courtroom, to sit quietly and suffer silently. Evelyn, well aware of that fact, happily consented to my acting as co-counsel, Although she remained skeptical about my ability to cross-examine major witnesses, she agreed that it would be an excellent idea for me to make the opening statement. Finally, after days of writing under the dim nightlight in the cell, I delivered it. I was nervous as hell, since I have never liked speaking in public, but I tried my best to express to the jury some of what I was feeling. Judge Thompson, Brothers and Sisters, Men and Women of the Jury I have decided to act as co-counsel and to make this opening statement, not because I have any illusions about my legal abilities, but rather because there are things that I must say to you. I have spent many days and nights behind bars thinking about this trial, this outrage. And in my own mind, only someone who has been so intimately a victim of this madness as I have can do justice to what I have to say. And if you think that I am serious, your senses do not deceive you. It is only because I know that this moment can never be lived again, and that so much depends on it. I have to read this opening statement to you because I am afraid that if I don't, I will forget half of what I have to say. Please try to bear with me. This will not be a conventional opening statement. First of all, because I am not a lawyer, and what has happened to me and what has happened to Ronald Myers does not exist in a vacuum. There are a long series of events and attitudes that led up to us being here. When we were sitting in this courtroom during the jury selection process, I listened to Judge Thompson tell you about the American system of justice. He talked about the presumption of innocence. He talked about equality and justice. His words were like a beautiful dream in a beautiful world. But I have been awaiting trial for two and one half years. And justice in my eyesight has not been the American dream. It has been the American nightmare There was a time when I wanted to believe that there was justice in this country, but reality crashed through and shattered all my daydreams. While awaiting trial, I have earned a Ph.D. in justice, or rather, the lack of it. I sat next to a pregnant woman who was doing 90 days for taking a box of Pampers, and watched on TV the pardoning of a president who had stolen millions of dollars and who had been responsible for the deaths of thousands of human beings. For what? For peace with honor? Nixon was pardoned without ever standing trial or being found guilty of a crime or spending one day in jail. Who else could have committed some of the most horrendous, destructive crimes in history and get paid 200000 tax dollars a year? Ford stated that he had pardoned Nixon because Nixon's family had suffered enough. Well, what about thousands of families whose sons gave their lives in Vietnam? And what about the millions of people who have been sentenced at birth to poverty to live like animals and work like dogs? What about the families who have sons and daughters in prison who cannot afford bail or even lawyers for their children? Where is justice for them? What kind of justice is this? Where the poor go to prison and the rich go free? Where witnesses are rented, bought, or bribed? Where evidence is made or manufactured? Where people are tried not because of any criminal actions, but because of their political beliefs? Where was the justice for men at Attica? Where was the justice for Medgar Evers, Fred Hampton, Clifford Glover? Where was the justice for the Rosenbergs? And where is the justice for the Native Americans, who we so presumptuously call Indians? I am not on trial here because I am a criminal or because I have committed a crime. I have never been convicted of a crime in my life. Ronald Myers is not on trial because he has committed a crime. He was 19 years old when he turned himself in after seeing his picture in the newspapers. He thought that the police would immediately see their mistake. I met Ronald Myers for the first time about eight months ago in the lawyer's conference room. It was a strange meeting, something I hope I'll never have to go through again. I was shocked to see how young he was. And no matter what the outcome of this trial, I will always feel a bitterness about what has happened to Ronald Myers and what has happened to me. I do not think that it is just an accident that we are on trial here. This case is just another example of what has been going on in this country. Throughout America's history, people have been imprisoned because of their political beliefs and charged with criminal acts in order to justify that imprisonment. Those who dare to speak out against the injustices in this country, both black and white, have paid dearly for their courage, sometimes with their lives. Marcus Garvey, Stokely Carmichael, Angela Davis, the Rosenbergs, and Lolita LeBron were all charged with crimes because of their political beliefs. Martin Luther King went to jail countless times for leading nonviolent demonstrations. Why, you are probably asking yourself, would this government want to put me or Ronald Myers in jail? In my mind, the answer to that is very simple. For the same reason that this government has put everyone else in jail who spoke up for freedom, who said, give me liberty or give me death. During the voir dire process, we asked you about the word militant. There was a reason for that. In the late 60s and the early 70s, this country was in an upheaval. There was a strong people's movement against the war, against racism, in the colleges, on the street, and in the Black and Puerto Rican communities. This government, local police agencies, the FBI, and the CIA launched an all-out war against people they considered militants. We are only finding out now because of the investigations into the FBI and the CIA, how extensive and how criminal their methods were, and still are. In the same way that witches were burned in Salem, this government went on a witch hunt for people they considered militant. Countless numbers of people were killed or imprisoned. The Berrigans, the Chicago 7, the Panther 21, Bobby Seale, and thousands of anti-war demonstrators were all victims of this witch hunt justice. Maybe some of you are saying to yourselves, no government would do that. Well, all you have to do is check out for yourselves the history of this country and to look around and see what is going on today. All you have to do is ask yourselves, who controls the government and who are the victims of that control? Since you have been in this courtroom, you have heard the name Black Liberation Army mentioned over and over. Those of you in the jury have been questioned as to what you have read or seen on television and what your opinions were about the BLA. Most of you have stated that you thought the Black Liberation Army was a militant organization. You have said that what you have read or heard has come from the establishmentarian media, the major TV and radio networks, the Times, the Post, and the Daily News. I have read the same articles that you have read. I have seen the same news programs that you have seen. When it comes to the media, I have learned to believe none of what I hear and half of what I see. But I can tell you, if I were just Jane Doe citizen, and if I did not know better, I would have read those articles and come to the same conclusion, that Joanne Chesimard, Ronald Myers, and all the other people called militants were a bunch of white-hanging, cop-hating, gun-toting, crazed, fanatical maniacs fighting for some abstract, misguided cause. But 1% of the people in this country control 70% of the wealth. And it is that 1%, the heads of large corporations who control the policies of the news media and determine what you and I hear on the radio, read in the newspapers, see on television. It is more important for us to think about where the media gets its information, from the police department or from the prosecutor. No major newspaper or television station has ever asked my lawyers or myself one question concerning anything. People are tried and convicted in the newspapers and on television before they ever see a courtroom. A person who is accused of stealing a car becomes an international car theft ring. A man is accused of participating in a drunken brawl, and the headlines read, Crazed Maniac Goes Berserk. During the 70s, the media created a front-page headline guaranteed to sell newspapers, The Black Liberation Army. According to them, the BLA was everywhere. Almost every other thing that happened was attributed to the Black Liberation Army. Headlines that are sensational sell newspapers. The media shape public opinions, and the results are often tragic. Before you were sworn as jurors, you were asked about your knowledge of what the Black Liberation Army is or what it stands for. However, most of you did say you believed that the Black Liberation Army was a militant organization. I would like to talk about that for a moment. The Black Liberation Army is not an organization. It goes beyond that. It is a concept, a people's movement, an idea. Many different people have said and done many different things in the name of the Black Liberation Army. The idea of a Black Liberation Army emerged from conditions in Black communities, conditions of poverty, indecent housing, massive unemployment, poor medical care, and inferior education, The idea came about because black people are not free or equal in this country, because 90% of the men and women in this country's prisons are black and third world, because 10 year old children are shot down in our streets, because dope has saturated our communities, preying on the disillusionment and frustration of our children. The concept of the BLA arose because of the political, social, and economic oppression of the black people in this country. And where there is oppression, there will be resistance. The BLA is part of that resistance movement. The Black Liberation Army stands for freedom and justice for all people. While big corporations make huge tax-free profits, taxes for the everyday working person skyrocketed. While politicians take free trips around the world, those same politicians cut back food stamps for the poor. While politicians increase their salaries, millions of people are being laid off. This city is on the brink of bankruptcy, and yet hundreds of thousands of dollars are being spent on this trial. I do not understand a government so willing to spend millions of dollars on arms to explore outer space, even the planet Jupiter, and at the same time, close down daycare centers and fire stations. I have read the Declaration of Independence, and I have great admiration for this statement. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure those rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles, and organizing its powers in such form, as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. These words are especially meaningful in the year of this country's bicentennial. I would like to help make this a better world for my daughter and for all the children of this world, for all the men and women of this world. But you understand that the BLA is not on trial here. I am on trial here. Ronald Myers is on trial here. And the charge is kidnapping and armed robbery, where the so-called victim is a drug pusher, a seller of heroin, a man called James Freeman. We live in New York, and it is impossible not to see the horror, the degradation, and the pain associated with heroin addiction. Most of you have seen the staggering numbers of young lives sucked into oblivion, into walking deaths by the use of drugs. Many of you have seen helpless mothers watch their children turn into nodding skeletons whom they can no longer trust, and seen the dreams, the potential of a whole generation of youngsters drain away down into the bottomless pit of a needle. And these victims also have their victims, the countless number of people who have been mugged, burglarized, and robbed by the drug-made vampires, who care about nothing else but their poison. We will show you that James Freeman is a liar. We will show you that the other prosecutors' witnesses are all friends, relatives, lovers, or employers of James Freeman, and that they are liars. You will see for yourself that they have conspired and that they have been coached. Men and women of the jury, human lives are serious matters. I have already told you that I have no faith in this system of justice, and believe me, I don't. I have seen too much. If there was such a thing as justice, I wouldn't be here talking to you now. You have been chosen to be the representatives of justice, you and you alone. You have said that you could try this case on the basis of evidence. What I am saying now is not evidence. What the prosecutor says is not evidence. You may or may not agree with my political beliefs. They are not on trial here. I have only brought them up to help you understand the political and emotional context in which this case comes before you. Although this court considers us peers, many of you have had different backgrounds and different learning and life experiences. It is important that you understand some of those differences. I only ask that you listen carefully. I only ask that you listen not only to what these witnesses say, but how they say it. Our lives are no more precious or no less precious than yours. We ask only that you be as open and fair as you would want us to be, were we sitting in the jury box determining your guilt or innocence. Our lives and the lives that surround us depend on your fairness. Thank you. As the prosecution begins its case, one witness after another took the stand. I don't remember how many there were, but they were a never ending parade. The trial was a circus. The carefully planned, carefully rehearsed case of the FBI and local New York police began to fall apart from the moment the witnesses were cross-examined. The prosecution was so desperate to get a conviction in this case that they resorted to stupid theatrical devices that backfired. One witness, also a drug dealer, hobbled up to the witness stand with the aid of a cane, looking like he was two steps from the grave. When asked about the source of his injuries, he stated that he had received them several years ago at the time of the kidnapping. Both he and the prosecutor must have forgotten that just a few days ago, he had bebopped into the courtroom to pick me out in an identification hearing, looking perfectly healthy. Under cross-examination, he was forced to admit that he had entered the courtroom just a few days ago without any visible limp and without the aid of his cane. He was the only witness who claimed he could positively identify me because I had spent weekends at his house, but he didn't know the color of my eyes. The so-called major witness, James Freeman, the supposed victim, told a real tearjerker about his kidnapping and the forced ingestion of drugs during it. The prosecution had lightly glossed over the fact that Freeman was a convicted drug dealer. We knew he was connected with the FBI in some way, but it was not until he was cross-examined by James Carroll, Ronald Myers' lawyer, that the real picture of collusion between him and the FBI came out. Freeman testified that he was a paid informant for the FBI. When asked if he had been paid by the FBI to frame me, he said that he couldn't talk about it. At the end of the People's case, our motions for a verdict of dismissal of the indictment were denied, and we put on our defense. Evelyn and Martha Pitts, a good friend of mine, were working around the clock. Since we could not afford to pay investigators, they did all the legwork. Martha, a registered nurse, investigated Freeman's claim of being drugged. Evelyn was running around like crazy after court was over, looking for witnesses to testify. Most of it seemed futile to me, since I could not conceive of how one finds defense witnesses in a frame-up. By the time we called our first witness, Evelyn was looking smugged and rubbed her hands together. "'We have get their ass this time,' she grinned. "'They didn't use enough dirt to cover their tracks.' And they didn't. Records subpoenaed from the State Liquor Authority proved that the bar was owned by someone else, not by the witness who had testified to be the owner.' The real owner testified that he had closed the bar before the alleged kidnapping, that he had visited it every day during the period of time it has hosted the kidnapping, and had locked the door as he left and had given no one permission to use it. The bar had been closed for one year before the alleged crime. The irrefutable and obvious conclusion was that, in fact, there was no bar, no scene of the alleged crime, and therefore no crime. Subpoenaed medical records and expert medical testimony showed that Freeman's stomach contained only a couple of aspirin, hardly supporting his testimony that he had been drugged with some drugs he could not identify, which he had been forced to swallow and which had left him knocked out for several hours. Sure enough, on December 8, 1975, after four months of trial, the jury acquitted Ronald Myers and me. Chapter 12 When I entered Manhattan Community College, I fully intended to major in business administration and then graduate into a job in marketing or advertising. Instead, I took only one business course. History, psychology, and sociology interested me more than learning how to sell somebody something. I had truly lucked up. I had gone back to school at a time when struggle and activity were growing, when black consciousness and nationalism were on the upswing. I had also lucked up on the school. Manhattan Community College had a very high percentage of black and third-world students, more than 50%. The level of activity was high, both on campus and off. The Golden Drums, the black organization on campus, whose president was a principled, discipled brother named Henry Jackson, was pushing for more black studies courses, black teachers, programs more responsive to the needs of black students and cultural awareness. They gave all kinds of programs on African dancing, drawing, and more. By word of mouth or by the bulletin board, we were turned on to concerts, plays, poetry readings, etc. The Last Poets, a group of young black poets, knocked me out. I had always thought of poetry in a European sense, but The Last Poets spoke in African rhythms, chanted to the beat of African drums, and talked about revolution. When we'd leave their place on 125th Street, I think it was called the Blue Gorilla, we'd be so excited and fired up we didn't even notice the long subway ride home. If I was running myself ragged before I went back to school, now I was flying. I was learning and changing every day. Even my image of myself was changing, as well as my concept of beauty. One day, a friend asked me why I didn't wear my hair in an afro. Natural. The thought had honestly never occurred to me. In those days, there weren't too many afros on the set, but the more I thought about it, the better it sounded. I had always hated frying my hair. Burnt ears, a smoky straightening, and the stink of your own hair burning. How many nights I had spent trying to sleep on curlers, bound with scarves that cut into my head like a tourniquet. Afraid to go to the beach, afraid to walk in the rain, afraid to make passionate love on hot summer nights if I had to get up and go to work in the morning. Afraid my hair would go back. Back to where? Back to the devil or Africa? The permanent was even worse trying to sit calmly while lie was eating its way into my brain. Clumps of hair falling out, the hair on your head feeling like someone else's. And then, I became aware of a whole new generation of black women hiding under wigs, ashamed of their hair, if they had any left. It was sad and disgusting. At the time, my hair was conked, but the hairdresser said it was relaxed. To make it natural, I literally had to cut the conk off. I cut it myself and then stood under the shower for hours melting the conk out. At last, my hair was free. On the subway the next day, people stared at me, but my friends at school were supportive and encouraging. People are right when they say it's not what you have on your head but what you have in it. You can be a revolutionary thinking person and have your hair fried up, and you can have an afro and be a traitor to black people. But for me, how you dress and how you look have always reflected what you have to say about yourself. When you wear your hair a certain way, or when you wear a certain type of clothes, you're making a statement about yourself. When you go through all your life processing and abusing your hair so it will look like the hair of another race of people, then you are making a statement, and that statement is clear. I don't care if it's the curly conch, latex locks, or whatever. You're making a statement. It was a matter of simple statement for me. This is who I am, and this is how I like to look. This is what I think is beautiful. You can spend a lifetime discovering African-style hairdresses. there are so many of them, and so many creative, natural styles yet to be invented. For me, it was important not just because of how good it made me feel, but because of the world in which I lived. In a country that is trying to completely negate the image of Black people, that constantly tells us we are nothing, our culture is nothing, I felt and still feel that we've got to constantly make positive statements about ourselves. Our desire to be free has got to manifest itself in everything we are and do. We have accepted too much of a negative lifestyle and a negative culture and have to consciously act to rid ourselves of that negative influence. Maybe in another lifetime, when everybody is equal and free, it won't matter how anybody wears their hair or dresses or looks. Then there won't be any oppressors to mimic or avoid mimicking. But right now, I think it's important for us to look and feel like strong, proud Black men and women who are looking toward Africa for guidance. I wasn't in school, but a hot minute when a brother in my math class told me about the Golden Drums. After a couple of meetings, I was hooked. They addressed me as sister, were glad to see me at meetings, worried about how I was making out in school, and were really concerned about me as a person. The subject of one of the many lectures scheduled by the drums was about a slave who had plotted and planned and fought for his freedom, right here in America. Until then, my only knowledge of the history of Africans in America was about George Washington Carver making experiments with peanuts and about the Underground Railroad. Harriet Tubman had always been my heroine, and she symbolized everything that was Black resistance for me. But it had never occurred to me that hundreds of Black people had got together to fight for their freedom. The day I found out about Nat Turner, I was affected so strongly it was physical. I was so souped up on adrenaline I could barely contain myself. I tore through every book my mother had. Nowhere could I find the name Nat Turner. I had grown up believing the slaves hadn't fought back. I remember feeling ashamed when they talked about slavery in school. The teachers made it seem that black people had nothing to do with the official emancipation from slavery. White people had freed us. You couldn't catch me without a book in my hand after that. I read everything from J.A. Rogers to Julius Lester, from Sonia Sanchez to Haki Mahubuti, Don Lee. I saw plays by black playwrights like Amiri Baraka and Ed Bullens. It was amazing. A whole new world opened up to me. I was also meeting a lot of sisters and brothers whose level of consciousness was much higher than mine. Black people who had gained knowledge not only by reading, but by participating in the struggle, who talked about Denmark Vesey, Gabriel Prosser, St. Kay, as well as Nat Turner, because they had gone out of their way to learn about our history and our struggle. Many of us have misconceptions about black history in America. What we are taught in the public school system is actually inaccurate, distorted, and packed full of outright lies. Among the most common lies are that Lincoln freed the slaves that the Civil War was fought to free the slaves, and that the history of Black people in America has consisted of slow but steady progress, that things have gotten better, bit by bit. Belief in these myths can cause us to make serious mistakes in analyzing our current situation and in planning future action. Abraham Lincoln was in no way whatsoever a friend of Black people. He had little concern for our plight. In his famous reply to editor Horace Greeley in August 1862, he openly stated, My paramount objective in this struggle is to save the Union, and is not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. Lincoln was elected president in 1860. Immediately afterward, South Carolina had a convention and unanimously voted to withdraw from the Union, before he had even been inaugurated florida georgia alabama mississippi louisiana and texas followed suit in his inaugural speech on march fourth eighteen sixty one lincoln said that slavery was legal under the constitution and that he had no right and no intention to abolish slavery He further promised to enforce the Fugitive Slave Act, which permitted Southern slave owners to reclaim their escaped slaves in Northern states. What the law actually did was give any white man with a certificate of ownership the right to kidnap any free black man, woman, or child in the North and force them into slavery. Because of this position, Lincoln received a great deal of criticism from black abolitionists. Ford Douglas, a runaway slave who accompanied Frederick Douglass on his anti-slavery tours in the West, blasted Lincoln's position, saying... In regard to the repeal of the Fugitive Slave Law, Abraham Lincoln occupies the same position that the old Whig Party occupied in 1852. Here, then, is Abraham Lincoln in favor of carrying out that infamous Fugitive Slave Law that not only strikes down the liberty of every black man in the United States, but virtually the liberty of every white man as well. For, under that law, there is not a man in this presence who might not be arrested today upon the simple testimony of one man, and after an ex parte trial, hurried off to slavery and to chains. On April twelfth, 1861, Southern troops fired on Fort Sumter, South Carolina, thus starting the Civil War. The response of the Northerners was electrifying. Millions who had been indifferent or lukewarm to the secession of the South jumped on the bandwagon to defend the Union. But the enthusiasm was short-lived. They already viewed black workers in the North as competitors for their jobs, and the white Northerners, for fear of losing even more jobs to the blacks, refused to enlist in sufficient numbers for the North to win the war. When the draft law was enacted, tens of thousands of white workers in New York City took to the streets and brutally beat and murdered every black person they could find. It has been estimated that between 400 and 1,000 blacks were killed as a result of the so-called New York Draft Law riots. Draft riots and the murder of blacks also took place in other northern cities. Lincoln had originally opposed blacks fighting in the Civil War, stating, I admit that slavery is at the root of the rebellion, and at least it's sin qua non. I will also concede that emancipation would help us in Europe. I grant further that it would help somewhat at the North, though not so much, I fear, as you and those you represent imagine. And then, unquestionably, it would weaken the rebels by drawing off their laborers, which is of great importance. But I am not so sure we could do much with the blacks. If we were to arm them, I fear that in a few weeks the arms would be in the hands of the rebels. History of the Negro Race in America, Volume 2, page 265. Northern whites were more happy at the prospect of black people fighting in the war, A popular verse published in newspapers of the day reflected the sentiment of many northerners. Some say it's a burnin' shame to make the niggers fight, and that the trade of bein' kilt belongs but to the white. But as for me, upon me soul, so liberal are we here. I'll let Sambo be murdered and place on meself on every day in the year. It was not until 1863 that Lincoln, in fact, issued the Emancipation Proclamation, but the document had very little immediate effect. It freed slaves only in Confederate states. The slaves in states loyal to the Union remained slaves. Lincoln clearly did not believe Black people could live in the U.S. as equal citizens. In the Lincoln-Douglas debates, he stated, "'If all earthly power were given to me, I should not know what to do as to the existing institution.'" My first impulse would be to free all the slaves and send them to Liberia, to their own native land. But a moment's reflection would convince me that whatever high hope there may be in this, in the long run, its sudden execution is impossible. What then? Free them all and keep them among us as underlings? It is quite certain that this betters their condition? I think I would not hold one in slavery at any rate, yet the point is not clear enough for me to denounce people upon. What next? Free them and make them politically and socially our equals? My own feelings will not admit of this, and if mine would, we well know that those of the great mass of whites will not. Lincoln was a firm believer in the massive exportation of black people anywhere. In 1865, at the end of the war, he asked General Butler to explore the possibility of using the Navy to remove black people to Haiti or to other areas in the Caribbean and South America. It's also important to understand that the Civil War was not fought to free slaves. It was a war between two economic systems, a war for power and control of the U.S. by two separate factions of the ruling class, rich white southern slave owners and rich white northern industrialists. The battle was between a plantation slave economy and an industrial manufacturing economy. An industrial revolution was taking place in the years before the Civil War. Inventions such as the cotton gin, the telegraph, steamships, and steam trains completely changed the methods of manufacturing, transportation, mining, communications, agriculture, and trade. The amount of goods produced was no longer determined by the number of people working in the process, but by the capacity of the machines. America was no longer a country that produced raw materials for the manufacturing nations in Europe. By 1860, the census reports that 1,385,000 people were employed in manufacturing and that one-sixth of the whole population was directly supported by manufacturing. The number was much higher when clerks, transportation workers, and merchants were added. As manufacturing centers began to grow, European immigrants were imported as a source of cheap labor. More than 5 million entered the U.S. between 1820 and 1860. Although the South had many cotton mills functioning, the factories were small and their numbers grew slowly. In 1850, the value of manufactured goods produced in the northern free states was four times the output of the southern slave states. And with the rise of industry came the rise of economic crisis and the threat of industrial collapse. Even though there had been economic crises in the past, people had generally lived on farms and the economic depressions didn't create such a great hardship for the masses. But with many people living in cities, economic crises meant unemployment and no way to pay for food, clothing, and shelter. The first big crash came in 1825, followed by further depressions in 1829, 1837, 1847, and a severe depression in 1856. The recession in 1857 almost completely destroyed the early labor movement. The poverty in northern and southern cities was staggering. Rags, filth, squalor, hunger, and misery were words used to describe the ghettos of the 1800s. To solve the problems in industrial cities, many called for reforms such as abolition of debtors' prison, an end to laws that kept white men who did not own property from voting, free education, the right to strike, an end to child labor, establishment of a 10-hour workday, and granting of land in the West to poor people in the cities. Big business proposed the expansion of capitalism and industry to other parts of the country. And this was where Northern capitalists clashed with Southern slave owners. Northern capitalists wanted new states to enter the Union as free states. Slave owners wanted new states to enter as slave states. To maintain a balance of power, the North and the South had entered into several compromises. The main one was the Missouri Compromise. Northern capitalists were afraid slave owners would open factories and produce goods more cheaply because they didn't have to pay for labor. White workers were afraid of losing their jobs because of slavery. Southern plantation owners, of course, wanted the system of slavery to expand across the country. All the differences between the North and South were economic, not moral. For capitalists to control the economy and the political system, the slave system had to be defeated. In 1856, the newborn Republican Party ran Abraham Lincoln, the former Whig, as their first presidential candidate. He lost. In 1860, he ran again with a strong three-point platform. Point one, to shut slavery out of the territories. Point two, to establish large protective tariffs. Point three, to enact a homestead law giving a medium-sized farm free to anyone willing to till the land. The platform was designed to appeal to rich northern capitalists, poor white laborers, farmers, and abolitionists. For a tiny portion of the population was the abolition of slavery a moral issue, and the overwhelming majority of white people who supported the abolition of slavery or who fought in the Union's army did so because they believed it was in their interest, not for love or concern for black people. I was gradually becoming more active. I began to control my life. Before going back to college, I knew I didn't want to be an intellectual, spending my life in books and libraries without knowing what the hell was going on in the streets. Theory without practice is just as incomplete as practice without theory. The two have to go together. I was determined to do both. The major way I got hip to things was by listening to people. The black students going to Manhattan Community College belonged to every type of organization. There were black Muslims, Garveyites, Malcolm X's Organization of Afro-American Unity, (OAAU), members of various community and cultural organizations, and a few who were young Turks of the NAACP. We got together and talked about everything under the sun. I did a whole lot more listening than talking, but I asked questions about anything I didn't understand. Sometimes, the discussions and debates got so heated that they lasted until 11 o'clock, when night school ended and the building was being closed up. One of the first organizations I checked out was a Garveyite group that had a big hall on 125th Street. I had just read a book on Marcus Garvey. In fact, I had only recently learned he existed. It was a shame... Here, he had headed up one of the strongest movements of black people in America, and I hadn't heard anything about him until I was grown. One of the brothers who was studying there invited me to a meeting. The meeting was upstairs. There seemed to be hundreds of chairs in the room. I arrived a little early, and hardly anyone was there. I spotted the brother who had invited me, and he introduced me to the 10 or 15 people already there. We sat around in a little group, talking and waiting for the others to arrive. They never came. It was obvious that everyone knew each other and had been coming to these meetings for a long time. After a while, a speaker climbed to the podium. He welcomed me to the meeting, then gave an impassioned speech. One after another got up and gave speeches as if they were talking to a room full of people. The others applauded loudly. I felt sad. They were such nice people and so sincere, but their circle had grown so small, they were reduced to giving speeches to each other. No movement can survive unless it is constantly growing and changing with the times. If it isn't growing, it's stagnant. And without the support of the people, no movement for liberation can exist, no matter how correct its analysis of the situation is. That's why political work and organizing are so important. Unless you are addressing the issues people are concerned about and contributing positive direction, they'll never support you. The first thing the enemy tries to do is isolate revolutionaries from the masses of people, making us horrible, hideous monsters so that our people will hate us. All we usually hear about are the so-called responsible leaders, the ones who are responsible to our oppressors. In the same way that we don't hear about a fraction of the black men and women who have struggled hard and tirelessly throughout our history, we don't hear about our heroes of today. The schools we go to are reflections of the society that created them. Nobody is going to give you the education you need to overthrow them. Nobody's going to teach you your true history, teach you your true heroes, if they know that that knowledge will help set you free. Schools in America are interested in brainwashing people with Americanism, giving them a little bit of education and training them in skills needed to fill the positions the capitalist system requires. As long as we expect America's schools to educate us, we will remain ignorant.
0: Context of white supremacy. We'll be picking up for me. Uh, We're on 181. 181. Uh, The paragraph where we will start the second audio segment is The Parents in the Ocean Hill, Brownsville section of Brooklyn. That's the first sentence where we will be picking up at. But We're in chapter 12. I guess kind of midway in chapter 12. But that's where we'll pick up at. Just mark that down for me. It's kind of the bottom of page 181. With that, folks would like to chime in, study session, Asada Shakur, her autobiography, feel free. The number to dial is 760-569-7676. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. That number again is seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six The code is five six four nine four three pounds. Press star six if you would like to participate. (laughs) If you would like to call in and uh, you don't want to use your phone, feel free to use the uh, free flash player. Um, It works anywhere in the world. It should be linked at Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the address, it's tiny.com forward slash one race and that is the number one so that address again is tiny t-i-n-y dot c-c forward slash one race and that is the number one so you put that in look on the left side you will see the link for the free Flash phone, click it. It will open a tiny window on your screen. Uh, the top line, it is a drop-down menu. Select the number that I just gave out, which again is 760-569-7676. 7, 6, 7, 6. Next line, it will ask for the code. That code, again, is 564 four. Nine. Four, three. Bottom line, it will ask for a name, real name, nickname, press random keys, whatever. Once you get all that entered, uh, you will see the green button at the bottom uh, to call the program. Click it, it should connect you. Uh, you should be able to hear us live. And it is the same procedure if you would like to participate. Press star six. You'll see the dial pad on your screen when you do so, you should hear an audio prompt to press the number one, press one, and I'll see your hand on the switchboard. We will get you on the line. That being said, uh, we will go ahead and nab our callers. Uh, if folks have anything they would like to share. Uh, everyone who dialed in with a hand up, you should be with us. Thanks so much for participating Feel free to jump right in.
5: Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. agree uh, greetings got greetings to out a call of this morning, Henry. Four. Uh, a key witness against uh, Miss Asada Chakur was uh, James Freeman, who. Uh, oh, let me let me. Before I get there, let me start out with the uh, photoshopping of the picture of the woman involved in the bank robbery. You know. it it looked as though it was a concerted effort, you know, the FBI, uh, the local law enforcement agency, were creating this frame up for Ms. Shakur. And so they had a a camera image of a female robbing a bank. And so they wanted to have her picture taken, you know, in a similar dress and similar glasses and a wig, you know, so they could Photoshop it and they can spin this uh, media story so that she can basically be tried even before she came to court. And I noticed that in the news nowadays, uh, that same thing is done. It's almost, they almost got a conviction on the person before they even get them in court. Uh, before the media gets through it. And then she she mentioned uh, Rima Olibala, who was found dead. They said he uh, fell to his death trying to escape. And I guess we can assume that it may be some suspicion surrounding <clears throat> there because I did a little research. There have been at least three. Other inmates that had escaped from that same facility, you know, before uh, Mr. Uh, Obalala, you know, tried his escape. And just a simple, uh, the rope or the makeshift rope broke and he fell eight stories to his death. You know, <clears throat> she mentioned another black man has died trying to be free. I think another uh, noteworthy point was uh, when she was coming up before a black judge, Judge uh, William Thompson, and she stated that the system would use him to give an illusion of justice. And you see that same thing, done today. But well, another interesting point was the question that was used to de- to determine whether or not potential white jurors were racist. Asking them if they had any black friends or neighbors. Would they object to their children marrying a black person? If they had referred to black people as niggers or any other derogatory names. And then what's more interesting is the white, a lot of them just got up and excused themselves rather than reveal the true feelings that they had toward black people. Now her opening statement was, you know, well written. It was quite long. But some of the points that I made out of there was she mentioned some well-meaning white folk. The Beringers, she mentioned, was Philip and David. Behringers, who were white activists during uh, that particular time that ended up going to jail and uh, creating disturbances to oppose the Vietnam War. The Rosenberg, and what was interesting when she mentioned Lolita LeBron and the three or four others that was with her when they uh, shot up the Capitol building in D.C. in 1954. And each one of them got 25 years in prison. But after her release and before her death in 2002, she was named Time Woman of the Year. And I just wanted to mention that we probably won't be seeing Ms. Shakur as time for one of the year in the time. Uh, I'll uh, reserve some of my comments. I I really like hearing about the last poets who brought back memories, uh, of their songs, uh their uh poems, uh niggers are scared of, of revolution. I'll mute my line, get somebody else can. Thanks, God.
0: Thank you, Mr. Demery for uh, anybody else with us. Line should be open. Feel free to chime in. Um, good evening, everyone. May I be
6: heard? Okay. I'm, I'm outside.
0: We well, can hear you crystal mm-hmm. clear, crystal clear.
6: Oh, great. Great. Um, it's karma and hope everyone's having an okay evening. I want to, to comment on sort of what Mr. Demery Four was talking about. I, I didn't do beforehand, so I'm, I don't have my book with me, but he—I'm not sure if he said it was interesting that the white people got up and left before their beliefs could be challenged, or did he say they got up and left because before people could find out their true beliefs? Because those are those are really different things, and if if they left, if they left because I'm not sure what she said, but I think that's really, really, really important. Is it more important that that the deception continue or is it more important that they not be challenged? That you they said, not have to face an internal external challenge.
0: She said so, I said, mean I was just gonna read the sentence really quick so that you, you know, you can share. Yes. So she said and this is the for me it's the bottom of one sixty five, she said, um, after a while many of the whites asked to be excused before Evelyn even asked them any questions most of them preferred to be excused rather than have their feelings toward black people black militants and black panthers questioned and explored there you go so
6: she she says it's both she says she's She she gets the impression that, one, white people don't want you to know, and two, they don't want to explore why they feel the way they feel. Mm, Those two are so different. I I don't know. If anybody has anything to say on that, I'd really love to hear it. That's it.
0: other folks, if y'all have comments on that specifically, or just other things that uh, you would like to share, if you haven't spoken yet, feel free. Folks might not be in a stable area where they can speak just yet. Uh, I'll go ahead and give my uh, feedback and then other folks that uh, have hands up, maybe they'll be able to speak at that time. Um, I guess first, um, Mr. Demri, he mentioned the last poets. Um, I thought it was great coincidence. Uh, if you paid attention, the clip that played at the beginning featuring the Young Turks, they were talking about Kamen and his disinvitation in connection with Asada Shakur. In the background, uh, the song, the corner was playing, uh, by common, uh, the last poets are on that song. (laughs) They're doing the, uh, the hook. Anywho, uh, to Karma's point, um, I I agree. I think those are, are two different things. Um, just not wanting black people to have this information and then not wanting like a rigorous interrogation, like let's, let's explore and, you know, process out, you know, what this means. Why do you think this way? What does this reveal about white identity? Um, I think it's, I think it's both. And I think that's pretty typical. Um, even the way some, uh, white people now avoid (laughs) this program, the cows, they want no association, Uh, And and kind of a similar pattern that I've seen amongst whites once they recognize like, uh oh, that is a non-white person that is a little less confused uh, and they might even have uh, enough black self-respect to challenge me on some things like I I have lost all interest in wanting to talk to them at all. Like I I have seen that demonstrated amongst many, many white people uh, down through the years. And I think that's even come out on this program uh, from time to time. Uh, Some of the other comments that I made, I guess, get right to Young Turks really quick. Um, You heard them at the beginning audio segment, but you also heard that in the body of the text this week where she was talking about Young Turks within the NAACP. Uh, And so I I looked up the term uh, Young Turk, a young person eager for radical change to the established order. I had no idea that that was an actual phrase, uh, which I'm sure influenced uh, the show, The Young Turks, with uh, Sank. We play some of their clips on the compensatory call-in, but I learned something there. Um, I thought it was interesting where she talked about uh, she didn't know about Nat Turner and how that inspired this uh, just insatiable appetite for reading. Uh, And to read about these black people who had been fighting against racism and even killing white people that she knew nothing about. Uh, And she connected that she went further to say that she had kind of thought of black people as chumps, that, you know, we didn't we didn't fight back and and we didn't even do anything. We just, you know, took this beating that Whitey was laying down. And I mean, that is said a lot. People have called to this program and said that. I mean, I, I hear that all the time. Uh, which, in my opinion, just shows yet another success of white supremacy, uh, where they can totally remove or totally recontextualize black people that have fought against racism. So that either you don't know someone like Mark Essex, we talked about him before mentioned uh, in the text. You don't know someone like Mark Essex. You don't know someone like Matt Turner. You don't know someone like Lavelle Mixon and Kosi Bondoway, long list, or they will even take someone like a Dr. King and they will just fabricate and give you little, they'll cherry pick and give you tidbits that they want you to know and leave out, you know, other aspects, him challenging uh, Vietnam and some of the others, even some of the comments that he made about a, quote-unquote, responsible leader and how he didn't like that term or even people calling him that. And he expressed a lot of the exact same sentiments that Asada Shakur did about, quote-unquote, responsible leaders, responsible black leaders. Uh, but I just, I thought that was really important. Um, and just another reminder of why it's so important uh, to do that read. I think that's kind of where we ended at, what she was talking about. It's, um, it is absurd to expect whites to correctly educate black people, victims of racism. That's work that we're going to have to do on our own, even about racism. Uh, I think kind of the same logic applies as to why they would not want to spill the beans. Uh, They would prefer to just be excused and have you think of them as a racist than to really process and help you get a better understanding of what it means to be white. Um, Let's see. I also thought just, you know, my opinion, I could be totally uh, in error, but a lot of the commentary that she shared about the Abraham Lincoln, the civil war. Number one, I think it's, it's always fantastic uh, to hear people who have not drunk the Kool-Aid and who understand Abraham Lincoln was a racist uh, and was not a pal to black people. That is always appreciated. Kudos. That being said, I felt like it kind of took up a lot. Like I noticed after a while, like, wow, this is really uh lengthy. I mean, you know, she did uh, her scholarship, right on. Definitely appreciate that as well. Uh, but I really would have preferred more detail about her than kind of being sidetracked to get all of this antebellum history and <laughs> civil war, uh, details. Like I just, uh, there's a lot of great material on that. Leron Bennett Jr. I just referenced it in, in one of my pieces, uh, his book forced into glory gives a lot of just fabulous detail, uh, about Lincoln's racism and the racist jokes he told and blah, 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 just as much as you want to know. But, um, yeah, if I if I had been a part of the editing process, I would have definitely encouraged scaling that down. <laughs> like uh, we want to know more about you and and your and I understand that this you know her getting this information was a part of the process of her becoming a Sada Shakur, but I would have, it would have been my recommendation to scale it down. Um, I will I will pause there. Well, actually, uh, my last comment then I'll pause. Uh, I thought with the jurors, I thought it was interesting because some of the questions that Evelyn Williams asked, I think the evolution of white supremacy, now you would have a sizable number of white people, sizable number of racists who could correctly, in quotes, answer those questions. You have a sizable number of racists who could say, hey, yep, I wouldn't have a problem if my white son or daughter uh, marry a black person I have never called a black person a nigger and I have a black friend I think you have a significant number of white people who could you know, give you the non-racist response to all of those questions but yet they still believe and, and practice white supremacy I think that's uh, significant as well just showing that white people they uh, adapt and I will pause there uh, any of the folks that we hadn't heard from did you all uh, want to comment now can I be heard? Yes, sir. How are you this evening? Gus, how's that old callers?
7: Um, greetings. Thomas in New York. Um, yeah, you, what you just said was on point. Um, yeah, she was right though. Um, you know, we can't depend on them to educate us on our own history. You know, we gotta do that on our own. And, um, I like how she kind of worded all of that there. um, I, you know, I can't say it verbatim, but she did a great job with it. Um, and, um, you know, yeah, there was a lot on that um, Lincoln history, too. I was thinking, wow, man, I feel like I'm at a lecture here. But it was one point, you know, and I'm thinking a lot of people might have never heard it until they read her book. So it it's, it's served its purpose, probably. Because, um, you know, to this day, you know, I, my grandmother thinks he's great. And... Um, you know, I can I tell her a million times, she just, you know, she just believes in what she believes. Um, you know, it just shows the power of white people, how they can just, you know, chump up charges. I mean, say she was robbing drug dealers or she was in south for something else that just sounded outlandish. Now someone's kidnapped, and they just have so much power, especially in that criminal justice system. They can get you to say whatever you know, it might you might get it be getting out of out of trouble if you do, you know, I mean it's just it's just so so much power and when I look at today how they're trying to make it seem like, you know, crime is on the rise and, you know, something needs to be done again and, you know, look at these Negroes, you know, it, you know, we, we don't we don't know what numbers they use. They could put whatever numbers they want there to say the crime is on the rise. I mean, it's their it's their total system. Um I didn't get the lady's question. Uh, I was trying to hear but I was in a loud environment at the time. Can she repeat it cuz I know she wanted someone to respond to it. Um, <laughs>
6: um I was it's coming again. I was um I was just saying that I couldn't decide when she was speaking about the um, jury selection and the way the white people excused themselves after realizing they were going to undergo that rigorous cross-examination, did she say that the white people had excused themselves because they didn't want to have their feelings about black people explored? Well, explored. I learned that word. Or they didn't want to have they didn't want to have their feelings about black people exposed. And, and I wasn't sure what she had said, but Gus read the passage and she, she said they excuse themselves for both of those reasons.
7: Wow. Well, I, I guess that's, that's why Gus just said what he said. So yeah, I I think that um, they don't have no problem lying if they want to. Like he just said, you know, I, mean, I got a woman. One of the people that you had on a straight racist, I got a black sister. I think she said, I was thrown back when she said that. I mean, it's, you know, you. I think that they just probably didn't want to participate. They didn't know they had no problem finding another white to do the to do the bidding. So you know, they just wanted to, they just wanted to, you know, not not participate. Maybe they thought it was gonna be a long trial. They didn't want to be involved. I mean, any other wife's gonna, you know, do the same thing. They're gonna do. They could have just said, "Yeah, I got a black this." You know, I got a black man. You know, yeah, I agree with Gus. Um, thank you guys. So, um, thanks, Carmen.
8: Greetings. Can I be heard? I can hear you loud and clear, sir. Thank you. Uh, I the, the, my answer to uh, the uh, the question is I think I think both of them are important. Uh, white people, in my experiences, are, are very arrogant, and no matter what position a uh, non-white black person is in i.e. the attorney uh the idea man is still the same how dare this nigga cross-examine me and and uh try to put me uh on point on things and catch me in a lie uh as far as they're concerned they, they'd rather just the system of racist and white supremacy provides an atmosphere where they just they can just walk away from it because it's already been established they don't have to to, uh, uh keep reinventing the wheel so to speak uh so that uh, level of white person just decides well you know I, I don't have to put up with this uh, type of thing as far as where from my experience to where I think the attitude is is so my answer would be affirmative to both of the questions that she she uh, had about uh, the way white people think. Uh, during this time, from my understanding, uh, my memory, uh, I was in high school for the most part during the, the early 1970s, and there was always, uh, 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 seemed to be on, on the uh, world news, I actually look at the world news during that time, with trials of this nature, of so-called quote-unquote radical organizations or individuals, uh, some of them uh, white some of them non-white, black, Uh, the difference with the whites, for the most part, what took place with them uh, in and around the 80s, they ended up uh, 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 graduating themselves into positions of authority. A lot of these so-called radicals, Uh, I'm I'm sure, Gus, uh, being that you're a historian, you can name some of those people who are in government as we speak right now some of those same people who used to be a part of these organizations used to be leading these uh, different strikes and, and so-called movements on these college campuses during that, during the sixties, by the 1980s, they were actively in, in the same process that they were uh, uh, so-called fighting against. Whereas uh, non-white black people who were uh, attempting as young people to fight against a system of racist white supremacy had much more dire consequences. Those who were able to uh, escape from uh, this part of the world uh, uh, to not stand trial because they knew what was going to happen to them, uh, they managed to get out. Uh, 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 A few who uh, tried to get out that couldn't like Angela Davis uh but anyway uh that's where I'm at it with that part, part in the uh in the book uh, it was uh, quite uh uh popular during that time and uh, of course uh uh Ms. Shakur was definitely one of those those cases uh as far as the, the book i I've heard the uh the conversation about the book how it switches to her uh period of time of of growing up and coming to understanding and knowledge and, and, uh, also from the point of where she was in the, in the process after the, uh, the shooting, uh, took place. Uh, she mentioned that she was, she was quite honest on herself on how, on how, uh, unknowledgeable she was about, uh, the system of racist white supremacy and, and, uh, non-white black people's efforts to, uh, fight against it. Uh, she was quite honest about it. Uh, uh, uh and I like that, uh, 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 the idea of a non-white person is being honest about their situation and their understanding. Uh, the part about, about when she went on about, uh, that part of history with Abraham Lincoln, I, during, during the time when I was, uh, uh, getting more or less really deep into, uh, have an understanding of the system of race, white supremacy, it was very similar, very similar as far as that concerned. And uh, I, my thought is is that the, the thought process is is that this is some of the origins of uh, our situation in this part of the world, so we must talk about it, so to speak. And uh, so it's not unusual for me to hear it from someone like Miss Shakur uh in in talking about, you know, the, the uh that particular point in time in the eighteen sixties. Uh, uh although we all know that the system of racism white like supremacy is global <laughs> and its origins go way back before eighteen sixty, uh as far as that concerned, Uh and uh, uh yeah um Yeah, it, yeah, and as far as uh, where this enlightenment generally, a lot of times it comes off of a co- college campus because you have you have a you have a have a situation uh, where you have a lot of uh, young people, young people who are looking for answers, and they happen to be in one spot called a college, and the ideas and the ideals uh, you know like, uh, go rampant. And uh, with trying to find answers, uh, uh, it something similar took place uh, with uh, Huey P. Newton and, and Bobby Seals uh, on the West Coast. At, and, 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 uh, and, and I believe it was at a junior college also, uh, similar to uh, what uh, her experiences were at Manhattan Community College. The same thing, I think, something similar took place with uh, Bobby Seals and, and Huey P. Newton on that, all that energy that was going on at that time, uh, a little bit earlier, of course, but nevertheless, basically it was something similar, uh, that took place. And, uh, uh, I have, I've had experiences in, and, and ironically, so it was at a junior college down here in South Florida. Also where we where myself and a few others were involved in, uh, uh, at, at, in the, uh, in the, actually in the eighties, uh, to tell you the truth. But, uh, yeah, uh, that's, that's my, uh, uh, piece in the the reading so far. Thank you.
0: I reckon to give uh, one name, uh, Bill Ayers, former guest on the program, uh, President Obama catches a lot of heat for him, but that would be one name uh, of a white person who was uh, on the FBI's most wanted list, um, bombed a federal building, uh, was a member of students, uh, Students for Democratic Society, SDS, uh, a bunch of uh, white people, racist suspects, uh, might have been uh, what they call government operatives uh, to go out and promote a lot of nonsense, drug use, silliness, uh, saying that they were against racism, down with the system and all that nonsense. But yeah, he was, as I said, blowing up federal buildings, FBI's most wanted list, and now he is a distinguished professor (laughs) in a major state university in Illinois. Uh, And he's published a lot of books about racism and uh, all of his hijinks during the sixties and seventies, but that's one. And I think there are quite a few other uh, prominent white people uh, who have, you know, these really nice teaching positions and they get to give lectures and do documentary films about, uh, as I said, all of their shenanigans in their younger days. Uh, It's, very, uh, very prominent business uh, for white folks. Um, and just to the point about that student energy that she talked about, I think that was pretty common. It, I, I think it's pretty common uh, throughout. You got a lot of students uh, who've been involved in uh, what's going down with Ferguson and Baltimore and Cleveland, a lot of the uh, other incidents. But even at that time period, SNCC was the student nonviolent coordinating committee, made it, later became student national coordinating committee uh, with a lot of students, John Lewis. Ella Baker, well, she wasn't a student at the time, but her influence, uh, but John Lewis was a student at the time. Uh, Kwame Ture at the time, Stokely Carmichael, was a student. Uh, so that big part uh, of what was happening uh, at that time, lots of uh, young people, lots of students uh, who were questioning and trying to get ideas about racism, white uh, white supremacy. Um, I know Mr. Demery Forrest said he had uh, other comments he wanted to make sure he got in them. Checking, we should have about 15 minutes, 20 minutes before we get to the next audio segment. If there are other folks who uh, have commentary, they want to make sure uh, they get in. I just I thought uh, for folks to kind of think now, Asada Shakur was fortunate enough to have her aunt, who seems like a really competent uh, attorney uh, and seemed like she had some understanding uh, about racism, white supremacy to help her niece out in this situation. But if you can think for a lot of black people, they're going to get a public defender who might sleep through their trial. If they even know their client's name, certainly it's probably going to be a white person. So I mean, uh, and then a lot of these cases, they don't even get to trial. Uh, I think most the vast majority of cases are plea bargained. Uh, It's, Hey, we, uh, we can take this to trial. And you could be looking at 15, 20 years or you could do a plea deal and, you know, serve three months and be out. Or maybe you don't even get any time. Maybe you do a plea deal and you get probation or what have you. I mean, they have so much power that I suspect it's a lot of black people that are facing nonsense. Uh, I think that was Thomas in New York was saying just total nonsense where they just go in and make up anything. You robbed a store. Uh, you looted this gas. I mean, anything. We just make up charges as we go. And, hey, you don't have an attorney. You don't have any money. You uh, might not even be able to get bond. Even if we do give you a bond, it might be, you know, high enough and we don't give you enough nickels that you can't even get yourself out of confinement. So you can stay here and plead your innocence or you can just go with the program. Just thinking of how frequently that's happening to black people worldwide. And I'll pause there. I know Mr. Demery said City had other comments. Anybody else have other comments? Mr. Demme, you can feel free to uh, share again as well. I know you said you had more.
5: Okay, yes. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, yes. Like on page 174, when she was mentioning uh, cutting her hair, you know, she said that uh, you can be a revolutionary thinking person and have your hair fried up or have an afro and be a traitor to black people. How you dress and how you look have reflected what you have to say about yourself. You know, she spent a little bit of time on this and this is another book where hair, you know, has come up as an expression of, uh, uh, you know, what your belief system is, I guess, or whatever. And um, she mentioned Amira Baraka, the playwright who had recently passed, I think he was, uh, you know, sort of a link between, you know, what was, you know, happening back then and what's going on now. And when she was talking about the Northern whites, you know, the little verse that they used to, I guess, sing or memorize, where they would let Sambo be murdered in place of myself on every day of the year. is probably uh, their feelings to this day. And then the northern capitalists versus southern slave owners, like Mr. Nelly Fuller said, whites may argue about how to practice racism, white supremacy, but they both agree on the practice of it. i mute my line.
0: Thanks for technical. That was a great poem as well. Uh, one of our guests on the program, um, Jan Nedervan Peters. I think he was on uh, from the Netherlands um, in 2010, but we talked about his book and he spent a, a good bit of time dissecting exactly that. You had a whole lot of Northern white rioted. We talked about all of that rioted and killed a lot of black people hanging black people in New York uh, during the civil war uh, and saying uh, we are for the union, not the niggers. I think that was one of their riot battle cries. Um, but she did some uh, name dropping again uh, in this portion of the text um, before she had said the name of Mark Essex. And I asked if people knew who that was and seemed like a lot of people didn't weren't familiar with Mark Essex. Um, this time she also dropped the name uh, Clifford Glover uh, when she was talking. That was in Chapter 11 uh, and talking about how uh, this happens pretty regularly. I didn't know who Clifford Glover was. Uh, And apparently he was the subject of a hashtag earlier this year. Uh, This is in the New York times from April 16th, 2015. Another reason to read the newspaper, a police shot to a boy's back in Queens echoing since 1973. It was 1973 long before anyone could imagine hashtag declarations of solidarity and protest. The kind of message to the world that today might read, I am Clifford Glover in the 4th grade. No one could no one could pull out a phone to make a video of Clifford Glover, a 10-year-old running from a plain clothes police officer with a gun who had just jumped out of a white Buick Skylark in Jamaica Queens on a spring morning in 1973. I am sure a camera would have helped but the ballistics were clear. Albert Gaudelli, a former Queens prosecutor, said this week, the bullet entered his lower back and came out at the top of his chest. He was shot T-square in the back with his body leaning forward. He was running away. The bullet killed Clifford Glover. Its trajectory through a family, a neighborhood, a generation can be traced to this day in injuries that never healed in a story with no final word. When a black man named Walter Scott was shot by a white police officer in North Charleston, South Carolina on April 4th, a cell phone video made by a passerby showed that Mr. Scott was also running away when he was killed and that he was not, as the officer claimed, carrying a police taser. With all this killing and stuff, said Pauline Armstead, a sister of the dead boy, they need to go back to Clifford Glover. Clifford, a black boy, had been shot by Officer Thomas Shea, a white man, who said he had tried to question him and his stepfather because they fit the descriptions of cab robbers. They ran. The officer said he fired when Clifford, in flight, pointed a gun at him, which the mortally injured boy had then managed to toss or hand to his stepfather. In the hours and days that followed the shooting, armies of investigators scoured the streets and sewers, poured over court records, and arrived without warrants to search the homes of Clifford's family and relatives. Guys were trying to help Shay and coming up with all kinds of stuff, said Mr. Godelli, who was the chief homicide prosecutor in Queens at the time. Someone showed up with a starter's pistol, but as soon as you pressed them on it, they folded. There was no gun. People in Jamaica rose in protest. The streets were blocked with heavy construction equipment owned by a black contractor. Mr. Shea became the first police officer in nearly 50 years to be charged with committing murder while on duty. Shea says the kid turned and appeared to have a gun. Mr. Gardelli said that's what got him indicted. The ballistics made Shea a liar. But not apparently a murderer at least in the eyes of the jury, of 11 white men and one black woman who found him not guilty. Afterward, many of the jurors joined Mr. Shea and his lawyers at a Queens Boulevard restaurant to celebrate. They told the reporters it was possible Mr. Shea had been telling the truth about seeing a gun. The same day, word of the verdict reached a baseball field, on the grounds of South Jamaica houses known locally as the 40 projects. Eric Adams, who was then a 13 year old from the neighborhood, was waiting to bat. We were playing a Long Island team that happened to be all white, said Mr. Adams, who became a police officer and is now the Brooklyn borough president. When the news came out, about 200 people emerged on the field. They just took the baseball bats and started beating the white players, chanting, Shay got away. Later, Mr. Shea would be fired despite a rally by police officers and the pleas of his lawyer, Jacob Ebersoft, who said his client was needed on the force to protect us from the animals who roam the streets of New York. I will stop there. Uh, it goes on. It's a pretty lengthy report, but uh, worth a read. Clifford Glover, and this was from April 16, 2015. Uh, they have photos. You can see his family. You can see Clifford Glover you can get more details. Uh, that is fascinating all the way. And that that is another one that you can add to your folder. The next time that somebody says black people are chumps and just lay down and take whatever white people dish out. Get that article the day when black people apparently took baseball bats to beat white people. Hmm. Uh anybody, anything else? Folks want to get in before we get to the second audio clip? About ten minutes left. Anything else?
8: Yes, yes, sir. Uh right quick, uh I thought she was uh she was on it uh with the uh with her discussion on, on uh hair, uh on how uh that uh if it's a uh, constructive thing. Uh, basically, when you uh, are satisfied with uh, the way the to uh, manage your outward appearance, and, but at the same time, uh, she mentions that, uh, you know, someone who uh, does have relaxer in their hair, but the, at the same time, who uh, who is actively fighting against the system of racist white supremacy, uh, uh, in, in other words, you, you just can't judge outward appearances. Uh I, I never saw uh Miss Fannie Lou Hamer with a afro. Uh, and I I would I would uh uh would like to be on her team any any day, uh as far as learning from her and uh trying to follow her as an example of standing up against the system of race of white supremacy. Along with uh uh I think her name was mentioned uh, when you was talking about the NAACP, uh Ella, I can't think of her uh, last name uh, that I, I never saw her. Baker, with Afro, Ella Baker. Uh, but never, Okay. Ella Baker. Right. It's so, uh, I think she was quite, uh, 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 on point with that, with that, uh, analysis. Uh, and, uh, I was just, uh, uh, giving, uh, talking to my, my son about, uh, uh, the, the history of, of rap and to mention that, uh, as far as, uh, a, uh, foundation of rap uh, last poets definitely have to be mentioned when it when it comes to uh quote unquote rap rap music uh and I was just talking about that a few days ago uh with the last poets uh and and uh, what they were doing at the time that's it thank you um, um can i can I...
6: Can I point out how, um, she was, she was saying how, um, how, wow, I'm learning all these things about us and it's having a profound change on me and I'm starting to think that it may, it's important when you go through your, your, your evolution you know as you become more what we say conscious you know first of all you don't even know about white people are mistreating you but well, you know you know more and, more and more and then then you know how much they're mistreating you and then you start to learn who are they what is it to be white but now i'm starting to get to a phase where i think that she's getting where the thing that's going to have the most profound effect on her behavior is not so much that she's learn that she's mistreated, she's learned how she's mistreated, she's learned who's mistreating her, but she's now finally learning who she is, and I think that's what's going to have, the more you learn who you are, that's what's going to have the most radical, that's the only thing that's going to have an effect on your behavior, because... Because I I think I've heard her say that in in a documentary. I think she she said that it wasn't so much what I learned about white people and just how demonic they can be, but it was when I learned my history and just how, how great I could be, and that's what changed my behavior. And I think that may be a reason that white people like to start us in slavery. And so, you know, so you don't get any of your history and I think that's why they always denigrate the fact that, why do you want to go all the way back to Africa or Mesoamerica? I mean, or the Egyptians. Why do you want to go all the way back there? I think that the continuation makes you exponentially, makes you change more. The more you know about yourself and your people from 10 years ago, from 50 years ago, from 100 years ago, from 1,000 years ago, from 5,000 years ago, the stronger you Get and the more it changes your behavior. And I would like to pay attention, since I haven't read this book before, to see if the more she learns about herself, the faster her behavior changes. If that makes any sense.
0: You'll have two more sessions, I think, to, uh, observe, uh, before we wrap things up. I think, uh, yeah, we have about two more to kind of note if she gives any more insight about, uh, the more she learned about black people, or how that impacted her behavior and the arc of her conduct, but two more, or I guess two and a half, cause we still got the the second audio from this week too. Um, uh, anybody else have anything, anything else they wanted to get in? Um, Does anyone think that um, this deal with Cuba
7: will get them to hand her over? Um, I'm thinking um, that's a part of the terms of this deal, and it might not happen under Obama, but definitely the next person that occupies that space. Um, I just wonder if anyone felt like that was part of that deal um, to to open up the, the relations with Cuba.
6: Well, anybody touches Miss Shakira and it's on. What does that mean? That just means that, you know, I'm not going to just sit around and be civilized all the time. I know that there are rules of conduct, and I really don't care. I'll just make up my own rules. You know, because that's just ridiculous. I mean, they've been hounding this woman forever. She's been out of their sight. I and mean, they've just been torturing her. And I, every time I go into the post office, I'm like, are you serious? You know, it's just—it's just like if if someone did something to President Obama, right or wrong, right or wrong, I'm gonna go over to somebody else's team. I don't care where that team is from—Japan, Africa, South America—whoever wh- is on the team that's going to be the most upset and going to do the most upsetting thing—that's the team I would be on. You know, I, I don't mind doing things this way and that way, but you know, to hound some woman to death after all of these decades, is the most inappropriate, obscene, and just, it's just behaved beyond obscene. I just can't even process that. And to accept that would be just awful for me. So, you know, even if I have to do just random something, something that's just really not going to have a direct effect, even if it has to be just random, you know? But, you know, I'm a mom lady. I don't mind saying it. I don't mind because I know there are people out there who are so much smarter than I am and so much more brilliant. And, you know, the best I can do for myself is listen to them and learn from them and try and be, you know, a much a much better, a much more effective person. But if I see something that is absolutely obscene and grotesque, I certainly am not going to sit around and just watch it. Mm. Don't know what I can do, but I don't, I'm just not the kind of person who'd be able to handle
0: the obscene and grotesque in my face. I don't think I can. Like, I just don't think I am. Mm. I uh my conclusion has but been my conclusion has been uh the system of white supremacy is pretty obscene and grotesque every day, but you know, that being said, um I uh I saw this week that they were Cuba. That area of the world was taken off the terrorist list uh this week, folks griped and complained about that uh still but you know moving forward i guess they say in improving relations between the two quote-unquote countries um i don't know i think as thomas in new york said i don't know if it'll be something that happens in the near future like sometime this year or next year before president obama exits the white house but i just cannot see white people letting this go um like you know hey (laughs) <laughs> bygones be bygones. That was forty years ago. You know, a lot of those people are dead now. I just don't see that. Nothing about their conduct suggests that that's the way that they're going to function. Um, it just—I uh, would just, given their conduct, uh, I would expect that she is going to be harassed and threatened until death, uh, until she is either back here in prison or until she dies. That's just what I've seen from white folks, racist man, racist woman, racist child.
7: You know my justice, I, I, an eye for an eye, two for tooth, a life for an eye. Yeah, I think the only thing that favor her with Castro is I think he really just didn't care about these people he already knew. But um, definitely I think um with with this new guy there, he looks like he's um he's down to do whatever man, and I I think that. It's already been written because they don't let nothing slide ever. I've never seen a part of history, man. It might take them fifty years, but they get even somehow.
4: Yeah,
6: but but white people do respond to things when you tell them. Listen, I can't stop you. I can't control your behavior. But when you get off, I get off. When you go off, I go off. We're gonna do this together. It's gonna there's gonna be parody. Just you know, I mean, they—they're they're not insane. They respond to that. I mean, they—they they will give that. They will give that considerable weight. You do that too.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get to the second audio, anybody have uh, other comments they wanted to make sure they got in before we conclude? Or everyone satisfied? thinking Folks might be uh, satisfied for the moment. That is fine as well. Uh, we can get to the second audio clip, and then that way, if you did not get to share or had an observation or what have you, and didn't get an opportunity to uh, chime in, you can just save it for the second audio clip. Um, I'll go ahead and share it now. That way, folks can devote maximum time to sharing any of their views. Uh, I was just checking this week, as I said, you can you can check. Uh, probably would be advisable um, to just check, get more information about Evelyn Williams. Uh, as I said, she has her own book. We've referenced that before. And then just what has happened with the arc of her career uh, since all of this. Um, but while I was researching earlier in the week, uh, also the New York times, now this is from 1987, a uh, fugitive murderer reported in Cuba. Joanne Chesimard, a leader of the black radical movement who escaped in 1979 from a New Jersey prison where she was serving a life term for murdering a state trooper, has been living in Cuba for three years and was interviewed there recently by Newsday. Miss Chessimard's presence in Havana was confirmed by the publisher of an autobiography he said she has written there. The publisher, Lawrence Hill, president of Lawrence Hill and Company of Westport, Connecticut, said the 40-year-old fugitive is living with her 13-year-old daughter, Kakuya Shakur. Newsday's article did not explain how Miss Chesimard got to Cuba, but mister Hill said last night that she fled there in the summer of nineteen eighty four. That's where she received refuge and can't be extradited, mister Hill said. Uh, the seventy three slang in March of nineteen seventy seven in New Brunswick, New Jersey, Miss Chesimard was convicted in the nineteen seventy three slang of a New York. Of, New, of a New Jersey trooper Werner Forster, 34 and the wounding of another trooper James M. Harper when a car she was riding in was stopped on the New Jersey turnpike she escaped from prison in 1979 after three visitors seized two guards at gunpoint and commandeered a prison van since then an intensive search by law enforcement officials has turned up few other traces of her Mr. Hill said last night that he first learned of Miss Chesimard's whereabouts six months ago when he was approached by her attorney Evelyn Williams about publishing Miss Chesabard's autobiography. Her lawyer has been back and forth to Cuba several times. mister Hill said Miss Chessimard has made some corrections on the rough galleys and has followed the book's production very closely. mister Hill said Miss Chesimard, who has changed her name to Asada Shakur, apparently made her whereabouts known at this time because of the pending publication of her book, which he said focused on her experiences in the black radical underground. This can't help but sell the book, he said. Um, I'll stop there get a little bit more uh, information. But uh, yeah, there's a lot, lot of material if you want to do any background researching uh, on the text. Uh, with that, uh, we will go ahead and get started with the second audio clip. Again, if you... Um, and get, uh see his hand up. Mr. Reed, did you have comments you want to get in before we get to the second audio?
3: Um, I was gonna wait, but since you unmuted me, I'll go ahead and say this real quick. Um, I have also been paying particular attention to uh Cuba and the political prisoners. Excuse me, um the political um What's the best way I could use word I could use? Let's just say um uh an escape slaved off the plantation and whether or not they would uh turn them over to improve relations with the US. Hey, I have seen no indication of that and from the people that I'm in contact with that's um in contact with others on the ground in Cuba, um they haven't indicated anything. But again, I mean just cause people don't know doesn't mean it can't happen. And so if i was in her position i would hope that she would go to tanzania and uh go live with uh brother pete o'neill and his wife he is also an escape um, uh slave off the plantation that that's all i wanted to add that
0: definitely is something to keep uh keeping on how all of this uh Unfolds, and I I was thinking the same thing because I'd heard reports where they had said uh, Cuban officials had said that they were not going to extradite her, and those were not going to be a part of the negotiations. But just as you just said, you know, people say things, but eh. Um, again, we'll get the second audio clip. Good to hear from our founder, Mister Scotty Reed, founder of the Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, We will get to the second audio again. We're in the middle of chapter twelve for me. It's like bottom of one eighty uh 181 uh where folks think you'll be able to find it context The white supremacy Asada shakur chapter 12
1: the parents in the ocean hill brownsville section of brooklyn like black parents all around new york at the time were pushing for control of the schools in their communities they wanted a say in what their children were taught in how their schools were run and in who was teaching their children they wanted the local school boards to have hiring and firing power over teachers in their districts but the city's Board of Education and the American Federation of Teachers was against them. A whole bunch of us from Manhattan Community College loaded on the subway and took the train out to a demonstration called by the Ocean Hill Brownsville parents. As soon as we got off the train, we ran into some students from CCNY. It seemed like the whole train had been headed for the demonstration, and it was just the kind of demonstration I like. An energetic sea of black faces, proud, alive, angry, disciplined, upbeat, and, most of all, with that sisterly, brotherly kinship I loved. Several of the parents spoke to the crowd, along with the black principal the teachers had insisted on hiring. A black teacher, head wrapped in a galet, talked about the importance of black people controlling our schools. She made sweeping gestures with her bangled arms as she spoke. Everybody dug what she said. We were all high on the atmosphere. It seemed like a kinetic dance was boogieing in the air. When it was over, I hated to go home. There aren't too many experiences that give you that good, satisfied feeling that make you feel so clean and refreshed as when you're fighting for your freedom. Most of us felt that taking control of our neighborhoods was the first step toward liberation. We sat in the subway station tripping. When the train did come, we just let it pass. First, we would take control of the schools. Then we would take control of the hospitals. Then we would take control of the colleges, the housing, etc., etc., We would have community-controlled employment, welfare centers, and city, state, and federal agencies. Hold on for a minute, somebody said. Where are y'all going to get the money to run all that stuff? We'll take community control of the banks, someone else answered. You'd better take control of the army, too, because those banks aren't just going to let you take their money lying down. We'll take control of the political institutions in our community. Then we'll take control of the congressional seats, the Senate seats, the city council seats, the mayor's office, and every other office that we can take control of. We'll take control of the political offices so we can allocate money to the people who need it. Y'all just wishing and hoping, someone said. You can control the social institutions and the political institutions, but you can't control the economic and military institutions. You can only go but so far. Everybody just sort of got quiet, thinking. Well, what are we supposed to do then? Just sit back and do nothing? Fighting for community control is just the first step. It can only go so far. What you need is a revolution. Everybody started talking about what the brother had said. We were all confused, but we were all enthused. That was the one thing I dug about those days. We were alive and we were excited and we believed that we were going to be free someday. For us, it wasn't a matter of whether or not. It was a question of how. We always started out talking about reform and ended up talking about revolution. If you were talking about anything except a few little jive crumbs here and there, reform was just not going to get it. I was long past the day when I thought that reform could possibly work, but revolution was a big question mark. I believed with all my heart that it was possible, but the question was how. I had heard a lot about the Republic of New Africa and had promised myself to check it out. The provisional government of the Republic of New Africa advocated the establishment of a separate Black nation within the U.S. to be made up of what is now South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. At the time, I thought the group was kind of wild and far out, but I got a good feeling being around them, and the idea of a Black nation appealed to me. The first time I attended a Republic of New Africa event, I drank in the atmosphere and enjoyed the easy audacity of it all. The surroundings were gay and carnival-like. A group of brothers were pounding out, with C Zulu, and Yoruba messages on the drums. Groups of sisters and brothers danced to motherland rhythms until their skins were glazed with sweat. Speeches were woven between songs and poems. Vibrant sisters and brothers with big afros and flowing African garments strolled proudly up and down the aisles. Ball-headed brothers wearing combat boots and military uniforms with leopard-skin epaulettes stood around with their arms folded, looking dangerous. Little girls running and laughing, their heads wrapped with galets. Tiny little boys wearing tiny little dashikis. People calling each other names like Jamal, Malik, Keisha, or Aisha. Sandalwood and coconut incense floated through the air. Red, black, and green flags hung from the rafters alongside posters of Malcolm and Marcus Garvey. Serious-looking young men wearing jeans and green army field jackets passed out leaflets. Exotic-looking brothers and sisters decked out in red black and green, sat behind felt-covered tables, and sold incense, bead earrings, and an assortment of other items. "'Peace, sister,' a voice said. "'Do you want to be a citizen?' "'What?' I asked without the slightest notion of what she was talking about. "'A citizen,' she repeated. "'Do you want to be a citizen of the Republic of Africa? "'How do I become a citizen?' "'Easy. Just sign your name in the citizen's book.' "'That's all?' "'Yeah. You want a name?' "'A name?' Yeah, sister, a name. If you want an African name, just ask that brother over there to give you one. The brother, she pointed out, was wearing a long bubble with matching pants and a matching fez-type hat. He was wearing various necklaces made of beads, bones, shells, and pieces of wood. His left ear was pierced, and his face was strained in concentration, the veins in his forehead throbbing. Without giving it a second thought, I went over to have my name changed. The brother looked at me asked me a couple of questions, which I don't remember, and then began shaking a container furiously. He hurled out the contents, which turned out to be shells, onto a soft cloth. After a long, concentrated stare at the shells and glancing back and forth at me, the brother decided that my name was to be Ibumi Oladele. He spelled the name out to me as I wrote it down. Then I hurried over to the sister's table and became a citizen of the Republic of New Africa. Ibumi Oladele. I like the way it sounded. Soft and musical, kinda happy sounding. I filed my new name away in my pocketbook and continued sucking in the atmosphere, tripping out on the idea of a black nation in Babylon, a nation of black people smack dab in the middle of the belly of the beast. Imagining black youth flourishing and being nourished in black schools taught by teachers who loved them and who taught them to love themselves, controlling their lives, their institutions, working together to build a humane society ending the long legacy of suffering Black people have endured at the hands of America. My mind spaced out on the idea, and in a minute, I was imagining red, Black, and green buses, apartment buildings with African motifs, Black television shows, and movies that reflected the real quality of Black life, rather than the real quality of white racism. I imagined everything from cities called Malcolmville and New Lumumba to a reception for revolutionary leaders around the world at the Black House, Sure enough, I liked the idea of a black nation, but I didn't give it any serious consideration as a possible solution. Back then, the idea just seemed too far-fetched. I guess, at the time, having an African name seemed a little far-fetched, too. I told my friends about the name, talked about it for a few days, and then promptly forgot about it. It wasn't until years later, after college and more revolutionary activism and marriage, that I began to seriously think about changing my name. The name Joanne began to irk my nerves. I had changed a lot and moved to a different beat, felt like a different person. It sounded so strange when people called me Joanne. It really had nothing to do with me. I didn't feel like no Joanne, or no Negro, or no American. I felt like an African woman. From the time I picked out my hair in the morning to the time I slipped off to sleep with Mingus in the background, I felt like an African woman and rejoiced in it. My big, abstract, black-and-white inkblot-looking paintings was replaced by paintings of black people and revolutionary posters. My life became an African life. My surroundings took on an African flavor. My spirit took on an African glow. from the paintings on my walls to the big, fat pillows on my floor, from the incense burning in the air to the music dancing throughout to the music dancing through the rooms. My whole life was moving to African rhythms. My mind, heart, and soul had gone back to Africa. But my name was still stranded in Europe somewhere. Joanne was bad enough, but at least my mother had given it to me. As for Chesimard, well, I can only come to one conclusion. Somebody named Chesimard had been the slave master of my ex-husband's ancestors. Chesimard, like most other last names black people use today, was derived from Massa. Black folks went from being Mr. Johnson's Mary and Mr. Jackson's Paul to being Mary Johnson and Paul Jackson. Sometimes, before dozing off to sleep, I would lie in bed and think about it, wondering how many slaves Chesimard had owned in Martinique and how often he beat them. I would stare up at the ceiling, wondering how many black women Chesimard had raped, how many black babies he had fathered, and how many black people he had been responsible for killing. So the name finally had to go. I thought about Ibumi Oladele, but there was one problem. I didn't know what the name meant. My new name had to mean something really special to me. At the time, there were little pamphlets being put out listing names and their meanings, but I had a hard time finding one I liked. A lot of the names had to do with flowers or songs or birds or other things like that. Others meant Born on Thursday, Faithful, Loyal, or even things like Tears or Little Fool or One Who Giggles. The women's names were nothing like the men's names, which meant things like strong, warrior, man of iron, brave, etc. I wanted a name that had something to do with struggle, something to do with the liberation of our people. I decided on Asada Olugbala Shakur. Asada means she who struggles. Oluqbala means love for the people. And I took the name Shakur out of respect for Zaid and Zaid's family. Shakur means the thankful. At first, the Golden Drum Society concentrated its efforts on Black culture and history. But after a while, we started to examine our role as students. We didn't want to be tape recorders, recording whatever information, facts, lies they gave us, and then playing them all back during examinations. We began to talk about an education that was relevant to us as Black people, that we could take back to our communities. We didn't want to learn Latin or classical Greek. We wanted to learn things we could use to help free our people. One of our first struggles centered on student government. Most of us were from working class or poor families, and we wanted a student government that was responsive to what we needed. We didn't need a student government that was brown-nosing the administration in return for favors and good grades. We wanted a student government that supported a Black Studies program, more Black faculty members, and other Black causes. As a result, the Golden Drum Society and the Students for Democratic Society ran a joint ticket and won by a landslide. It soon became evident that having control of the student government wasn't enough. It had no real power. We would pass resolutions and come up with proposals, which the administration would promptly deny. The only power we had was over the student government budget. Instead of inviting reactionary scholars or politicians to speak, we invited the Young Lords or the Black Panther Party or some other group who was saying something relevant. One of our proposals was for students to work during the summer in remedial programs to improve the level of kids who had trouble with reading and math. Our idea was to have a few kids assigned to each other, student-teacher, In that way, each one would receive the individual attention he or she needed. The academic curriculum was to be supplemented with courses that would enhance the student's sense of self-worth and give them more of a sense of their history. Student teachers would work with parents, visit the kids' home, and create a kind of day camp by offering sports, trips, crafts, etc. Several of the black faculty members helped us with the proposal. As soon as it was submitted, it was rejected. The administration claimed there was no money. A small investigation into finances, aided by some concerned black and white faculty members, revealed that the president of the college was living in a house rent-free, that taxpayers were also providing him with a chauffeur and maid services, and that student fees, which had not been spent in previous years, were being invested on the stock market. A rather strange financial picture was emerging. After we made some of our investigation results known to the administration, we were informed that the money for the project had been found. As a student teacher, I taught reading and math in the morning, and arts and crafts in the afternoon. The morning classes were tiny, while the afternoon classes were larger, combining various morning groups. The curriculum included black history, dancing and drumming, physical education, arts and crafts, in addition to reading and math. There was an excursion every Friday afternoon. My mother thought my teaching, reading, and writing was a joke. My spelling is terrible, and my skills in mathematics are limited to 2 and 2 equaling 4. To prepare myself for the day's lesson, I had to study just as hard as the kids. My students shocked the hell out of me. Through conversation, it was obvious just how bright they were, yet they scored way below their grade levels in reading and math. There was such a big contradiction between the intelligence they exhibited in class and their test scores that I didn't know where to begin. The books we had to work with were Reader's Digest-like textbooks that I couldn't even imagine using. I didn't even want to read those things, and I knew sure as hell that my students wouldn't want to use them. So every day, I took the vocabulary out of those books and wrote a little story, something I thought the students would find interesting, typed it on a stencil, and ran it off. I brought all kinds of books to school for them to read, and as long as they found the books interesting, those students would read until the cows came home. I was learning just as much as the kids. I found it oppressive playing teacher all the time, so every day I rotated the thing around. Everybody got to be teacher for a while. It was also great for discipline, since if somebody acted up in your class, you were free to act up in theirs. Nobody wanted people to act up in their class, so everyone was more or less cool. In order to teach, each one of us had to prepare our lesson and know what we were talking about. One of the boys in the class worked so hard on his lessons that he would just lay me out. I don't know where he is now or what he's doing, but if he isn't a teacher, it's a damn shame, because he would have been a great one. He would cut out pictures and even make up math games for us to play. My class in the afternoon was usually exhausting. Clay, paint, paper mache over everything and everyone, especially me. The first days of that class, I wanted to do nothing but go somewhere and have a good cry. On the first days of the arts and craft class, I had nothing really prepared, so I asked everyone to draw themselves. When I looked at the drawings, I felt faint. All of the students were black, yet the drawings depicted a lot of blonde-haired, blue-eyed, little white children. I was horrified. I went home and ransacked every magazine I could find with pictures of black people. I came in the next day and plastered the walls with pictures of black people. We talked about what was beautiful. We talked about all the different kinds of beauty in the world and about all the different kinds of flowers in the world. And then we talked about the different kinds of beauty that people have and about the beauty of Black people. We talked about our lips and our noses. We made African masks out of clay and papier-mâché. We made African sculptures, painted pictures of Black people of Black neighborhoods. Over the summer, I felt the classroom changing. The kids were changing, and so was I. We were feeling good about ourselves and feeling good about being with each other. I was so involved in working at the school that I had time for little else. If one of the students didn't come to school, I was at his or her house that very day wanting to know why. I would go home and spend hours rewriting some story or preparing for the next day. Half the time, my mother would find me asleep with a book in my hands and all the lights on. I loved working with the kids, and I loved teaching. My mother helped me quite a lot, and we grew closer than we had ever been before. I thought about becoming a teacher, but decided against it. For the first time, I became aware of what my mother had been going through all those years trying to teach in New York schools. Most of these principals are caught up in bureaucracy, and they force the teachers to be caught up in it too. They care more about what the teachers have written in their plan books than what they are actually teaching in the class. My mother was working in an environment where white teachers often showed a hostile, condescending attitude towards black children, and where some teachers thought of themselves as zookeepers rather than teachers. As much as I loved working with kids, I knew that I could never participate in the Board of Education kind of teaching. I wasn't teaching no black children to say the Pledge of Allegiance or to think George Washington was great or any other bullshit. That fall, the level of activity on campus surpassed anything that we dreamed of. Large numbers of students became involved in the anti-war movement. It seemed that there was no time to catch up with all the things that were happening. I would be at the construction workers' demonstration one day and then marching with the welfare mothers the next. We got down with everything rent strikes, sit ins, the takeover of the Harlem State Office building, whatever it was. If we agreed with it, we would try to give active support in some way. The more active I became, the more I liked it. It was like medicine, making me well, making me whole. I was home. For the first time, my life felt like it had some real meaning. Everywhere I turned, black people were struggling, Puerto Ricans were struggling. It was beautiful. I love black people. I don't care what they are doing. But when black people are struggling, that's when they are the most beautiful to me. As usual, I was speeding. My energy just couldn't stop dancing. I was caught up in the music of the struggle, and I wanted to dance. I was never bored and never lonely, and brothers and sisters who became my friends were so beautiful to me. I would mention their names, but the way things are today, I'd only be sending the FBI or the CIA to their doors. There were a lot of communist groups on campus. I had no idea at the time that there were so many different kinds of communists and socialists. I had been so brainwashed, I had thought that all communists were the same. That there were Marxists, Linists, Maoists, Trotskyites, etc. Most of the so-called communists I met weren't in any party at all, but just related to the philosophy of communism. Most followed very different political lines and policies, and it was difficult for them to sit down and agree on the time of day, much less hatch up some communist plot. I was surprised to learn that there were all different types of capitalist countries, and different types of communist countries. I had heard communist bloc" and behind the Iron Curtain so much in the media that I had naturally formed the impression that these countries were all the same. Although they were all socialist, East Germany, Bulgaria, Cuba, and North Korea are as different as night and day. All of them have different histories, different cultures, and different ways of applying the socialist theory, although they have the same economic and similar political systems. It has never ceased to amaze me how many people can be tricked into hating people who have never done them any harm. You simply mention the word communist, and a lot of these red, white, and blue fools are ready to kill. I wasn't against communism, but I can't say I was for it either. At first, I viewed it suspiciously, as some kind of white man's concoction, until I read the works by African revolutionaries and studied the African liberation movements. Revolutionaries in Africa understood that the question of African liberation was not just a question of race, that even if they managed to get rid of the white colonialists, if they didn't rid themselves of the capitalist economic structure, the white colonialists would simply be replaced by black neocolonialists. There was not a single liberation movement in Africa that was not fighting for socialism. In fact, there was not a single liberation movement in the whole world that was fighting for capitalism. The whole thing boiled down to a simple equation. Anything that has any kind of value is made, mined, grown, produced, and processed by working people. So why shouldn't working people collectively own that wealth? Why shouldn't working people own and control their own resources? Capitalism meant that rich businessmen owned the wealth, while socialism meant that people who made the wealth owned it. I got into heated arguments with sisters and brothers who claimed that the oppression of black people was only a question of race. I argue that there were black oppressors as well as white ones. That's why you've got blacks who support Nixon or Reagan or other conservatives. Black folks with money have always tended to support candidates who they believed would protect their financial interests. As far as I was concerned, it didn't take too much brains to figure out that black people are more oppressed because of class as well as race, because we are poor and because we are black. It would burn me up every time somebody talked about black people climbing the ladder of success. Anytime you're talking about a ladder, you're talking about a top and a bottom, an upper class and a lower class, a rich class and a poor class. As long as you've got a system with a top and a bottom, black people are always going to wind up at the bottom because we are the easiest to discriminate against. That's why I couldn't see fighting within the system. Both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are controlled by millionaires. They are interested in holding on to their power, while I was interested in taking it away. They were interested in supporting fascist dictatorships in South and Central America while I wanted to see them overthrown. They were interested in supporting racist, fascist regimes in Africa while I was interested in seeing them overthrown. They were interested in defeating the Viet Cong, and I was interested in seeing them win their liberation. A poster of the massacre at My Lai, picturing women and children lying clumped together in a heap, their bodies riddled with bullets, hung on my wall as a daily reminder of the brutality of the world. Manhattan Community College had not one course on Puerto Rican history. The Puerto Rican sisters and brothers who knew what was happening became our teachers. I had hung out all my life with Puerto Ricans, and I didn't even know Puerto Rico was a colony. They told us of the long and valiant struggle against the first Spanish colonizers, and then later against the U.S. government, and about their revolutionary heroes the Puerto Rican Five Lolita Lebron, Rafael Miranda, Andres Cordero, Irving Flores, and Oscar Colato each of whom had spent more than a quarter of a century behind bars fighting for the independence of Puerto Rico. Once you understand something about the history of a people, their heroes, their hardships, and their sacrifices, it's easier to struggle with them to support their struggle. For a lot of people in this country, people who live in other places have no faces. And this is the way the U.S. government wants it to be. They figure that as long as the people have no faces and the country has no form, Americans will not protest when they send in Marines to wipe them out. I had begun to think of myself as a socialist, but I could not in any way see myself joining any of the socialist groups I came in contact with. I loved to listen to them, learn from them, and argue with them, but there was no way in the world I could see myself becoming a member. For one thing, I could not stand the condescending, paternalistic attitudes of some of the white people in those groups. Some of the older members thought that, because they had been in the struggle for socialism for a long time, they knew all the answers to the problems of black people and all the aspects of the black liberation struggle. I couldn't relate to the idea of the great white father on earth any more than I could relate to the idea of the great white father up in the sky. I was willing and ready to learn everything I could from them but I damn sure was not ready to accept them as leaders of the black liberation struggle. A few thought that they had a monopoly on Marx and acted like the only experts in the world on socialism came from Europe. In many instances, they downgraded the theoretical and practical contributions of third-world revolutionaries like Fidel Castro, Ho Chi Minh, Augustino Neto, and other leaders of the liberation movements in the third world. Another thing that went against my grain was the arrogance and dogmatism I encountered in some of these groups. A member of one group told me that if I was really concerned about the liberation of black people, I should quit school and get a job in a factory, that if I wanted to get rid of the system, I would have to work at the factory and organize the workers. When I asked him why he wasn't working in a factory and organizing the workers, he told me that he was staying in school in order to organize the students. I told him I was working to organize the students too, and that I felt perfectly certain that the workers could organize themselves without any college students doing it for them. Some of these groups would come up with abstract, intellectual theories totally devoid of practical application and swear they had the answers to the problem of the world. They attacked the Vietnamese for participating in the Paris peace talks, claiming that by negotiating, the Viet Cong were selling out to the U.S. I think they got insulted when I asked them how a group of flabby white boys who couldn't fight their way out of a paper bag had the nerve to think they could tell the Vietnamese people how to run their show. Arrogance was one of the key factors that kept the white left so factionalized. I felt that instead of fighting together against a common enemy, they wasted time quarreling with each other about who had the right line. Although I respected the work and political positions of many groups on the left, I felt it was necessary for black people to come together to organize our own structures and our own revolutionary political party. Friendship is based on respect. As long as much of the white left saw their role as organizing, educating, recruiting, and directing black revolutionaries, I could not see how any real friendship could occur. I felt and still feel that it is necessary for black revolutionaries to come together, analyze our history, our present condition, and to define ourselves in our struggle. Black self-determination is a basic right, and if we do not have the right to determine our own destinies, then who does? I believe that to gain our liberation, we must come from the position of power and unity, and that a black revolutionary party, led by black revolutionary leaders, is essential. I believe in uniting with white revolutionaries to fight against a common enemy, but I was convinced that it had to be on the basis of power and unity, rather than from weakness and unity, at any cost. To my mama. To mama, who has swallowed the American dream and choked on it. To my mama whose dreams have fought each other and died, who sees but cannot bear to see a volcano eating its own lava. To my mama, who couldn't turn hell into paradise and blamed herself, who is always seen reflected in her mirror an ugly duckling. To my mama, who makes no demands of anyone because she don't think she can afford to, who thinks her money talks louder than her womanhood, To my butch femme mama, who has always taken care of business, who has never drifted hazily to sleep thinking he will take care of it, who has schemed so much she sometimes schemes against herself. To my sweet, shy mama, who is uneasy with people because she don't know how to be phony and is afraid to be real, who has longed for sculptured gardens, whose potted plant dies slowly on the windowsill, we have all been infected with a sickness that can be traced back to the auction block. You must not feel guilty for what has been done to us. Only the strong go crazy. The weak just go along. And what I thought was cruelty, I understand was fear. That hands stronger than yours and whiter than yours, would strangle my young life into oblivion. Mama, I am proud of you. I look at you and see the strength of our people. I have seen you struggle in the dark, the world beating on your back. Dragging your catch back to our den, pulling your pots and pans out to cook it. A mop in one hand, a pencil in the other, marking up my homework with your love. The injured have no blame. Let it fall on those who injure. Leave the past behind where it belongs and come with me toward tomorrow. I love you, mommy, cause you are beautiful. And I am the life that springs from you. Part tree, part weed, part flower. My roots run deep. I have been nourished well.
0: Context of white supremacy. Folks would like to participate. The number to dial is 760-569-760. Seven six the code is five six, four nine or three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Everyone who dialed in who has a hand up, your line should be open. Uh, We have more than a half hour left, so everyone should have ample time. If you have not shared, if you think, you know, there's something you want to contribute, even the possibility that you might want to chime in, you should go ahead and get your hand up now so that we don't have folks waiting until the very last minute to participate. Uh, Again, everyone who dialed in with a hand up, your line should be open. Feel free to chime in. Yes, sir.
5: I just wanted to mention the uh, name changing. It was sort of like a ceremony, like a ritual or something. You know, I think it was worth mentioning when she came to a realization of the, uh, you know, the slave name, how it was. It was interesting that she used. Chesimar, which was an ex-husband's name, but, you know, how that all played out. And then she just came to the point that, you know, that's got to go. I need to be, and she chose a name that had a meaning. And uh, I think that was very important, and it carried, you know, lifelong implications. That's all I wanted to mention about that part of it. Thanks for taking the call.
7: Can I be heard? Loud and clear. Yes, sir. Um, quick, couple points here. Um, I was just words, you know. Um, you know, communism. Like, did they really think white people was gonna allow black people just become communists like in America? Like, you know, some of the stuff is like, what were they thinking? You know, uh, revolution. You know, that to me, that's a poor choice of words. You know, because what are you going back to? At what point in time are we going to go back to here? You know, what you want to go back to slavery? You know, I mean, when you have a revolution, you're evolving, You're going back to the way it was before whoever was in place now. You know, I just, you know, think it was poor choice of words, the black revolution. And and, um, if they were, you know, some of them had, you know, these communistic views, which, which made sense. But we don't own the land. We don't own a city or a state. To, to impose any of these laws. So, I mean, it was it's a little, like, far-fetched to me, you know, some of the stuff. And that's all I have to say for now.
8: Uh, greetings seems like no one else was uh, going to come on, so I might as well say something. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, about the uh, the uh, contact with the Republic of New Africa, uh, I uh, had uh, myself personally experienced with the Republic of New Africa, so I can attest to uh, what her uh, thoughts were nothing nothing that was uh not constructive but uh yeah had uh similar experiences and thoughts uh actually was uh in contact with the uh one of the founders and i think he's still alive today i uh, just, just can't remember his name right now uh it was such a while ago um Uh, also with the, uh, the name change, uh, I myself, uh, quote unquote, legally changed my last name, uh, had some similar thoughts that Ms. Shakur had, uh, with the first, my first name, uh, I, I, the, the idea of it came from my mother. So I, I didn't feel comfortable with changing that aspect, changing that, that, that portion. Uh but I have no problem at all with the with the uh with the last name, uh, because of the uh direct history behind it. Although uh correct me if I'm wrong, according to uh Mr. Fuller, Mr. Fuller's uh, uh uh code uh actually is like the cart before a horse. Uh first we need to take care of the system of racial white supremacy, uh, before those those other things like name changing take place uh uh is uh i think what his uh codified uh understanding is uh but i didn't have any problem with uh the last name and uh i uh quote unquote had that legally changed it, it was it was quite fascinating uh, uh in my uh at the time when i was still uh employed with uh dade county fire department on <laughs> on uh how, uh, the look on white people's faces when they had to call, call me, uh, by that name. Uh, it was fascinating, uh, uh, experience, uh, uh, because I went through the, the, uh, uh, system, uh, on, uh, that, that's primarily controlled by white people on how that was to be done. Uh, I can recall the, uh, the, uh, sitting in the judge's chamber with my attorney and she asked me the judge she was young white female and she asked me on on uh why uh that I want to do something like that <laughs> very very interesting question for her to ask me and uh, I went about the me went about the way of uh answering that question uh, uh on what and, and she uh, very quickly signed the document <laughs> very quickly signed the document uh uh, uh on it so uh, i can identify with uh with miss shakur in that in that way uh and that's uh also uh i can i can feel her uh her uh energy uh when she was speaking about uh the contact she had with uh other people, I believe younger people, uh, with the uh, student teaching uh environment that she was in. Uh it is a a, a a very energetic and gratifying uh experience. Uh it could be both for the uh quote unquote students as well as the teacher. Matter of fact, in, in reality, teachers are also uh, uh, good teachers are also good students too at the same time. And she mentions about that dual that dual relationship where, Hey, some days I can, I can go into that atmosphere and I can learn something too, you know? And, uh, so, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's something that, uh, I've experienced also as a, uh, quote unquote football coach and dealing with, uh, primarily black males, uh, in, 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 an environment where, where we're sharing, uh, experiences. Uh, is that, that's, like a very uh energetic and uh it actually you know helps you get up in the morning you know you're looking forward to uh coming in contact with uh with other people in in an environment where people are attempting to learn something It's, it's very very energetic and uh that's all i have to say right now thank you
0: Uh, our narrator might be hanging out with us once again. Let's see if she has anything to say, also. Um, I can uh, toss in quickly. Um, this is for me on 190. I guess before I even get to any of that, uh, one of our previous books, i.e., Kuwaiti Arma, 2000 Seasons, uh, that we did a while back. He also wrote a really important essay uh, called on masks and Marxism, uh, where he gives his critique, uh, his recommendation, really, that black people uh, discontinue dependence on Marx uh, and other white theorists or uh, other white folks who have concocted ideas that are supposed to help black people rid themselves of racism. Uh, and he talks about how Karl Marx was a racist as well and uses some of Marx's own uh, publications to support his claim uh, and talks about uh, just what he has seen, his observations on uh, black people who have picked up some of these white theories to try to deal with racism and how it, it simply has not helped us uh, solve the problem. So that would be one. A yi arma on masks and Marxism. Uh, to her point uh, where she's talking about she wasn't against communism and how people were confused about this. Uh, You all touched on it already where Mr. Fuller, I think number one, where he has concluded that uh, the master communists and the master capitalists are both racist man, racist woman, uh, whatever it means. Um, The second thing I thought uh, she was very accurate just in, in talking about how you can groom people so that they will just respond uh to a word um you know you can just throw it out I guess now it would be isis uh but before uh red baiting you know as a communist and putting a non white color to it red baiting uh but I thought that was really important as well um when she when she says uh I can't find where the sentence began. uh, Revolutionaries in Africa understood the question of African liberation was not just a question of race, that even if they managed to get rid of the white colonialists, if they did not rid rid themselves of the capitalistic economic structure, the white colonialists would simply be replaced by black neo-colonialists. I don't uh, don't think that would be uh, accurate. I don't think that's the most precise way of describing uh, what we have in the system. Uh, of white supremacy uh, and some of that even came through in the next paragraph where she said uh, she got into heated arguments with sisters or brothers who claimed that the oppression of black people was only a question of race. I argued that there were black oppressors as well as white ones. That's why you've got blacks who support Nixon or Reagan or other conservatives. Black folks with money have always tended to support candidates who they believed would protect their financial interests. Uh, Again, I would... At least in my view, that would uh, not be the most accurate way of describing uh, what's happening here and with people just being confused and free in the system of white supremacy. Um, any of the other folks who got hands up more recently, uh, you all have commentary. You want to make sure you got in as well. Your line should be open. the other folks who had a hand up sure I have commentary as well or are you just listening hello yes sir
5: hi uh, yes um, I just want to comment on
8: um, page 182 when um, Asada she was coming back from the demonstration with other people and they were all um, talking about how they were going to take over you know take over this take over the hospitals take over that and then the, the voice of reason comes up and says you know hold on you know how are y'all put on doing that you know where are you going to get the money And so I just thought that was, um, you know, like someone saying, you know, you think white people are going to let you, you know, just go on and take over like that. And so, um, I just thought that was, um, interesting.
5: Um, but, um, that's all I had to say.
6: Well, And, and my bid to take over this little pond, the first thing I did was take over the money. And what the white people did was tell all the black people not to take any money from us. I mean, I, <laughs> I thought it was amazing. I said, wow, they can just tell black people who need money not to take money when I try to give it to them. So, I mean, they, they, really, are, they really are amazing. But um, just diabolical. But um, I'm, I'm sorry about my outbreak but I I really identify with Miss Shakira. I really identify with her so much. I mean like any attack on her would be like a personal attack on me and I mean even the things she does like with the being just you know aghast at the way all of the children saw themselves. I mean I've gone through all of that with my nieces and nephews painting all the little white pictures black with the little different pencils of different weights and shades <laughs> so the kids won't have all of these little white people on all of their books. You know, it's just, um, I just identify with her so much, um... And as far as the Young Turks is concerned, I listen to the New Books Network. I don't guess if you guys ever listen to that. But you can hear white people in like fields like sociology and anthropology, they will just let it go because they know no one's going to read that book and no one's listening to them and it's just all about them. And they will let all of that filth about themselves out. And um, one thing, I, the Young Turks refers to when a lot of the Arab Turkish men and I, I got this off the new book, I can't remember the author's name, though, we're referring to when the Turks um, did the Albanian gen- genocide that finally ended around the early 1900s and took their population from 20% in Turkey all the way down to 0.2%, which is what it is, and it's stayed that way since then. So And, you know, they are really happy with their young Turks for doing that. The Albanians were Christians, and I was very shocked to see that a tiny little place like this in Texas would actually go over there and send and help these white Christian Albanians escape Turkey because of their persecu- persecution by the Muslims in the early 1900s. And I see evidence of it in this little tiny Texas museum. They just went over there and got all these little Albanian Christians, white Christians, and rescued them to go out of Texas. Um, and I think um, the only other thing is I was in Corpus Christi last weekend and and some non-white, non-black people, Spanish-speaking people, were being denigrating and saying, "You know, we hate it when people go out and get people to do Spanish, uh, Spanish advertisement, and they get these people who speak Puerto Rican Spanish or Cuban Spanish because you know that doesn't appeal to us at all." And if I hadn't been listening to the show, I, I wouldn't understand that they were saying black Spanish thanks yeah. and uh, those are the only things that uh, I saw.
5: I would like to mention uh, when she was a teacher and the administration had claimed that there was no money, that was on page 187, and then <coughs> they... <coughs> they did a small investigation into the into finance. The finance. Um, and they found out that the, uh, the principal or the president of the college was living rent-free on taxpayers' money and all that. But then the final outcome that in the end, they got the... Uh, I guess, the funds that they wanted in the first place. But I sort of had a problem with that because uh, if, you know, the president was involved in all of this, uh, you know, misuse of funds, he was, you know, committing a crime. (laughs) I mean, you would just turn your back to that so that you could get your funding you know, your small funding, I guess it's sort of like you pick your battles, you know, instead of going for, you know, winning the war. You just have to, I guess, suck some of them money. But I think some of those uh, individuals need to be reported, and they need to uh, account for their crime, um, you know. Uh I just wanted to
8: uh add someone was about to say something. Oh I, I I just wanted to add on uh that in the very beginning of the uh second reading uh about the parents in the Ocean Hill Brownsville section of Brooklyn, uh there there is a uh good uh report on that in the uh documentary uh, eyes on the prize. Uh, I believe it took place in 1968, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, And it and and, and, you know, if you wanted to uh, see it, see a report on that audio visually, uh, just pull up that section of eyes on the prize. And it has that on it. Uh, it, Very, uh, very, very good report on uh, black, quote, unquote, parents, who uh, didn't have a lot of uh, uh, personal income, but was uh, standing up uh, against the system of racist white supremacy and how it affects their children? Uh, they were showing that they wanted to take over uh, uh, the uh, the system uh, of education, the uh, people activity of with education within the environment, in order to get the best best uh, uh, effect on their children. Uh, and openly, the system of racist white supremacy, uh, you know, at point in times when the people are conscious of something, that's when you wanna bring out uh, uh, direct uh, violence and or direct action from uh, white people who uh, insist upon practicing the system of racist white supremacy. And uh, that portion of eyes on the prize gives a good in- illustration. Uh, of 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 that uh, in that particular uh, uh, experience that I believe it took place, like I said, back in 1968. If I'm not mistaken.
7: Yeah boy, are they being punished today? <laughs> Hi, Mel. Yeah, they. they oh.
8: I was about to say, yeah, they, they, uh, they, they, like, like uh, she was saying that they, they actually got rid of all of those teachers, all of those white teachers who were in there, uh, like she was mentioning about later on. That, but that was uh, uh, really uh, uh, directing their attention as teachers to our children, as though as a zookeeper to animals. They kicked them out of the school, and uh, as she, as she mentioned, it, it was, it was their union their union that, uh, exerted its power, uh, and enforced, uh, their right to come back in and, and kind of like destroyed, uh, their efforts.
3: That's it. Can I be heard? Hello?
0: I hear can- hey, Mr. Reed. Um,
3: oh. I didn't mean to be rude the uh, first time I spoke, so greetings to you, Gus, and greetings to all the listeners. I wasn't able to catch um, just the beginning of that last clip because I'm attending to my grandson, And but I just had some thoughts that I wanted to lend to that, was that the importance of education and what the last caller was pointing out, uh, that gentleman, uh, the importance of liberating the black mind. You know that really stood out, and it, it comes to having us say in your children's education, and it's like you know the universe speaking to me about my grandchildren, and hopefully I can have an influence on my children. You know, not to to um, excuse me to homeschool because we did what I felt like was a great informative program earlier today with a black homeschooling and um, of liberating the black mind expo that's happening in Atlanta. This is the fourth annual and the uh, the our guest Queen uh, Thais was very informative about the harmful impact of the racist system of public education uh, on our children and that there are resources out there for people today who may not think they're available but if you just network uh, which this expo helps to do that um, you know, you do have options other than doing the wrong, wrong thing, which is allowing racist white supremacists to indoctrinate your children through what's called curriculum. So that that's very, that's very, very in, important. Um, And I could see that played a role in her life because today education doesn't teach these children to ask questions. And and people during her time who thought like her were, you know, people were conscious were asking questions. Is this correct? You know, and it seemed incorrect to them. And so they set about um, to do as much as they could to change the system of racism and white supremacy, um, or I should say not change it, but lessen the impact on their children in the area of education, which I think is one of nearly full of juniors uh, nine areas. Um, So, um, But um, also, um, I wanted to go revisit what um, Gus was talking about, the threat against her. And there is a real threat, whether the Cuban government hands her over or not. It's not what is the immediate threat to her. I don't know if y'all remember the former NY uh, PD commissioner, Bernard Kerrick, now a convicted felon. Well, not long after they announced the normalization uh, process with Cuba, he took to YouTube and the video is probably still up and issued a direct threat and calling on bounty hunters to seize the date. That's a direct quote, seize the date. So it's not whether or not the Cuban government hands are over, but whether or not she is protected from all these racist suspects that I imagine are going to flood the island. And I'll mute my um, line. Thank you.
0: Uh, right on from Mr. Reed. Definitely agree with that. Uh, our narrator, Mel, did you have anything you wanted to make sure you got in as well?
4: Um, can I be heard or am I too loud?
0: No, nope, we can hear you. Your volume is fine.
4: Okay. Um, I'm so sorry for joining in so late. And my first point is actually referring to the first half that was read. So if anybody made this point, uh, you can jump in and interrupt me at any point. But I'm sure she has her reason for it. Definitely interesting that Though she noted in the previous chapters that plenty of black men are killed in greater confinement and labeled to suicide all the time, her friend Rima Oliveira's death was simply explored as like a wayward escape attempt, especially after he was, um, up, I guess, trying hard to pour over the discovery material. And it reminds me of a scene actually at the end of To Kill a Mockingbird where Atticus Fitch, the little lawyer who died, Tom Robinson, the black man who's been falsely accused of rape. And Tom Robinson, I guess. I just really don't want to run this language. Sure but something, when well, he gets shot at the end of the movie, they're trying to run away from the prison guards, I guess. And Atticus, the lawyer, hears about this. And they're just bend it, I guess. And I know prison King be was desperate,
0: but I think a good takeaway might be to always. Your uh, volume went up. <laughs> it was fine. And then it went up. So if you could uh, turn it down to give us the Atticus Finch uh, killing, t- to kill a mockingbird comparison again.
4: Oh my God. I'm sorry. Okay. Is it better?
0: That's better. Just make sure when you get passionate about your point, just make sure your volume doesn't go up.
4: Okay. I'll try to control my inflection too. Robotic. Okay. Let's do this. All right. So there's a scene at the end of the kill a mockingbird where the white lawyer Atticus Finch finds out that Tom Robinson, the black man that he barely defended gets shot while trying to run away from the prison guards. And Atticus hears about this. And as his lawyer, he just believes what the guards tell him. And I think that while prison can make you desperate, I think a good takeaway might be to always, always get like three causes of death if possible. Like if someone tells you one thing is the cause of death, try to get two more responses from someone else. Or if someone tells you your house burns down, try to get more than one cause of the fire. Cause that just seems to be something that really undermines black people. Um, Another thing is I really enjoyed the Civil War history lesson with the citations, like I think sneaking in concrete information about context and history into fiction and biographical books is a good idea, especially when it has citations, Um, and it makes it an enjoyable way to process the information. Um, I also agree about the definition of a communist. Uh, what everybody else's points were and find that her description of the communists is pretty similar to her description of a liberal, meaning that they pretty much say everything and say nothing at the same time. Um, To add on to Scotty Reed's point, homeschooling is such a good idea. Um, For anybody that probably could do it, I don't have any children, um, but I'm a big advocate of homeschooling, specifically a form of homeschooling called unschooling. And while this isn't the educational episode, there is a book by the quote-unquote father of, I guess, modern homeschooling written by, um, I think, a New York Times, no, a New York State Public Teacher of the Year. Like He won like a bunch of big awards, if I forgot, but his name is John Taylor Gatto, and the book is called The Underground History of American Education. I'm not sure if anybody's heard of it, but it gives um, a lot of anecdotal evidence on the actual origins of American schooling in the late 1800s, and I want to say traces it all the way back to the caste system in India and the way that it's set up. And although the guy, I would suspect, honestly, is very racist himself, and the book is very, very white-centric, it does give a lot of interesting um, historical information. And that was all I had, actually.
0: No 909 is very familiar with John Taylor uh, Gatto. Uh, he suggested uh, that we have him as a guest on the program uh, Quite a few times. Um, and one of the, the books that you just cited, and I think he has another one that's also about the educational uh, system. I think one of the anecdotes, uh, 909 always references, he talks about how uh, John Taylor got out. He says that a lot of these quote unquote elite institutions like Harvard and Princeton, Yale, quote unquote Ivy Leagues, they, uh, they won't accept you unless one of your hobbies is like something potentially life-threatening. Like you have to show them that Um, You have uh, this willingness to risk your life, uh, to to impress them, to get in. But he did like you said, a lot of different anecdotes that give you a better understanding uh, of how the uh, educational system is set up in the system of white supremacy. But, yeah, great, uh, great information. Great reference with uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. I guess that should have been a cowbell uh, with To Kill a Mockingbird and uh, Atticus Finch, the great, not racist white man, uh, who is also Superman incidentally in the movie, um but uh yeah, he just accepts what they tell him about uh poor Tom Robbins has died, and oh well, <laughs> nothing we can do about it now um i uh I thought her her commentary towards the end about uh as you say, white liberals, which sounded similar to what she was saying about communists uh she said that arrogance was one of the key factors that kept the white left. So factionalized, I felt that instead of fighting together against a common enemy, they wasted time quarreling with each other about who had the right line. Although I respected the work and political positions of many groups on the left, i left it. I felt it was necessary for black people to come together to organize our own structures and our own revolutionary political party. Friendship was based on respect as long as much of the white left saw their role as organizing educating, recruiting, and directing black revolutionaries, I could not see how any real friendship could occur. I felt and still feel that it is necessary for black revolutionaries to come together, analyze our history, our present condition, and to define ourselves and our struggle. Black self-determination is a basic right, and if we do not have the right to determine our destinies, then who then who does? I believe that to gain our liberation, we must come from the position of power and unity that a black revolutionary party led by black revolutionary leaders is essential. I believe in uniting with right with white revolutionaries to fight against a common enemy. That's one of those. Where, it's one of those where it's like I'm with you. I'm cheering like yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we get to. That. I believe in uniting with white revolutionaries. It's like the record. Ble- oh, it's like wait a minute. Like I was I was riding along. We were going great. And I think it's not even a diss. I just I think it's one of those things where as you get a better understanding, I think with the hindsight in reviewing the conduct of a lot of these white people that she's saying uh, are revolutionaries uh, and that they're willing to fight against a quote unquote common enemy, reviewing their conduct, because it's been more than 20 years, 30 years, I guess now we're talking since this book was published with that hindsight, I have not seen Anything that would lead me to conclude that there are any, not one white person that is for real about working against racism, ending this problem and seeing that black people are never treated to this level of terrorism again. I just have not seen those white folks. And that's that's not even a a criticism. I am just appreciating her work and reflecting on what has happened. And I even, I even find the greater hypocrisy that you see all of these, the new generation of liberal whites running around in the streets saying Asada taught me and all this other nonsense as though they care about Renisha McBride, Michael Brown Jr., any black person. I will hush there if anybody has any other comments they want to get in. If I'm talking crazy, feel free. Or if you just have anything else you want to make sure you get in before we, we wind up.
4: Can I be heard again? Yes, ma'am. Okay, so I had a weird thought probably a month ago, and I told my partner about it. I was thinking, um, I don't think this would really prove they're not racist at all. But I was wondering if it would be at all helpful to any counter-racist efforts. If kind of like how black well kind of like how black revolutionaries in the book are told, oh not even told oh, just a lot of people kind of change their names away from their slave names, which I think is a perfectly valid thing. I think it'll statistically make it hard for you to get a job, but I do think if that is what you need to do, then you got to do it, you know? But I was wondering if white people did the same thing, like if white people started naming their children Asada or Olubala and stuff like that, I was wondering if that would help at all. I don't think they will, but I don't know, random thoughts.
0: Uh, I can just speak as a resident on the West Coast. Just because uh, there are white people doing that, Uh, I have bumped into them. Not like massive numbers, but such people do exist. That's one and two. uh, What problem do you think it would solve if, like, a significant number of white people started doing that? Like, what would improve for black people if that happened?
4: That's probably a good question for me to explore further I was thinking in terms of employment but employment is its own powder keg that just changing names won't exactly solve so I'm going to think on it further thank you for asking
3: for sure if if I may answer that question Gus we can hear you go ahead um yeah let me answer that that question um let's make this perfectly uh clear all right There are not a significant number of white people that I feel are committed to ending the system of white supremacy. But if they want some examples, if you want to really say you're a white person, a racist suspect fighting against this racist system, then you should emulate those known as the United Freedom Front. Since we're talking about a side of Shakur, we got to talk about, you know, all those different groups. You mentioned the other group that probably was infiltrated, COINTELPRO, and, you know, and you know, you laid out the evidence. Now they got these prestigious teaching, you know, uh, uh, positions and writing all these books, and they're not in prison. Like the white people who were members of the United Freedom Front who, during the 80s, uh, bo- actually did carry out bombings, uh, about 20 bombings, nine bank robberies. Uh, to fund, you know, uh, their activities. These were former Vietnam vets um, training explosives and and others in targeting corporate buildings, courthouses, and military facilities. So um, they were known also uh, the case, the uh, criminal case uh, was referred to as the Ohio seven. So we only talking about at most seven white people. So if we had, let's say, 7 million white people following their uh example then i would say you would have um um seven million uh racist suspects committed to ending the system of racism and white supremacy i'll
0: mute my line yeah i don't see uh i don't see white people replicating <laughs> that, uh, that behavior uh, at all to go out and defend, uh, particularly to use counter-violence uh, to defend and say, uh, even I could quote a film, Heart of a Lion, it's subtitled, but it's Excellent study of racism, white supremacy, Uh, but it demonstrates a white person who ends up having to go repeatedly having to go out and practice violence against other white people who are practicing racism against a black person. So he has to end up going out and repeatedly using counter violence to defend a black person against racism unless you're doing. And I just haven't seen any evidence that white people are going to do that. And even these uh, little sporadic pop ups from now and then that just further uh, for me clarifies what it means to be white. The fact that you have so few of these uh, white folks uh, willing to do this that, you know, they're not even statistically significant. Um, With that, uh, we did our three hours. I did see some people called in, but I, I said that last week, like people are waiting until We're at the three hour mark when the program would end and then they're calling in like get you. And I prompted about that this week. I prompted I said we have more than a half hour left in the program. So call now. Don't wait till the last minute. Get your hand up. If you even think that you might want to share, go ahead and put your hand up. That way we can get you on the line. That's it. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow for the compensatory call in 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific Uh, chime in. We are definitely looking forward to hearing uh, thoughts observations from the past week workplace racism the whole nine uh, but that'll be in roughly 24 hours and we also have some uh well i guess i'll give out the programs that are coming up uh tomorrow uh, but let me know if you have a comment you didn't get to share feel free you can drop an email untiljustice at com, and you can let me know we can reach your comments on air uh we'll be back next week same time 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m Pacific. Uh, we should have at least two more of these sessions to go. So you'll have ample opportunity to share, even if it's something from this week that you want to make sure that we uh, include or touch on before we wrap up the book. You have any questions, complaints, gripes, anything else, feel free, to drop an email until justice at gmail.com. We will pick up next week on chapter 13. Thanks again to Mel doing an outstanding job narrating the text Uh, We are closing in on the home stretch. I hope it has been constructive uh, for folks tuning in. Thanks to all the folks who have participated uh, for the past few weeks as well. It's been great uh, commentary and hopefully we'll continue the last two sections uh, of the text. Uh, With that, I know it is it has been lovely. I think this is the first time that I have ever looked at my forecast for uh, Washington state and seen a string of 80 degree days like that is a rarity in these parts. So I hope folks are enjoying uh, the vitamin D and getting some sunshine. Uh, but even with that, remain codified. This is not a time to be acting crazy or just getting out and uh, misbehaving or being around folks that are doing non-constructed things. Definitely with that alcohol and toxicants, definitely make sure you're not behind the wheel. Uh, I know white folks do a lot of those sobriety checks and that sort of thing. During the summertime, you got July 4th coming up soon. So they're going to be out for that. Really be careful about that. You don't want to cause any unnecessary problems for yourself. You already know we're under a system of terrorism. They are looking uh, to get you hemmed up and waste some of your money, waste some of your time, compromise your employment opportunities and quality of life. Make sure you are never behind the wheel of a vehicle while you are intoxicated. I would even recommend against being a passenger and being intoxicated because they just like to make up reasons to harass black people. Even a pedestrian, <laughs> you, you want to give pause to that. If you got to consume any alcohol or intoxicants, I would say get to one spot and stay there. Be at your residence or if it's going to be a group of you all, non-white people, of course, no white people involved. Uh, get to one spot and stay there. That way you can leave sober the next day and you don't have to worry about any of that. It's just too many instances uh, where black people were doing nothing and police enforcement officers, race soldiers came and harassed and just caused them a lot of unnecessary problems. I think that's one easy thing that we could do that would minimize a lot of foolishness. No alcohol, having black people being serious about sobriety. That being said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice as soon as possible context of white supremacy black talk radio network signing out thanks all for tuning in
3: nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim no brother problem. you're a victim hey, i'm up. a victim of 400 years of conditioning
0: shut up the man has programmed my condition mm-hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned <laughs>